All right, hello and welcome to the Working Title Podcast, Episode 4. Um, today, I've got David Ricci on the show. And David had a little bit of an accident back in 2011. He was hit by a train, lost his right leg, and then he got a ton of uh, infectious diseases that were antibiotic-resistant, known as superbugs. David has been the subject of many documentaries for, for PBS, uh, CBS, Al Jazeera, the Australian Broadcasting Company. Uh, he's gotten the opportunity to speak at the UN General Assembly. And uh, I, I believe this September, as a member of the American uh, Microbiology Society, he's going to be speaking with Congress alongside 40 other scientists. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Um, it's a longer one. We cover quite a few uh, subjects in this podcast, so I, I hope you guys find it eclectic and fun to listen to. Uh, you guys have a good day. All right. Welcome to the Working Title Podcast, Episode 4. Today I have David Ricci. And David Ricci, uh, well, what are you? I am, well... Let's see, I'm a biologist, first and foremost, I would say probably, and uh, I study microbiology and infectious disease, but I also really care about foreign policy and philosophy. All right. Now, the thing that kind of kicked off your entire career in biology and infectious diseases was this accident that happened to you in 2011 in India. Mm -hmm. You were hit by a train. Is that right? Yeah. Can you walk me through how that happened? Your 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 memories of the last memories you have of it, and your earliest memories of waking up. Yeah, so it was June twenty eighth, two thousand eleven. I was in Calcutta, India, which is like the northeastern part of India. And I had been working at an HIV orphanage. And one morning, the walkway that we take to the orphanage from where I was staying, it walks through the slums, because that's where the orphanage was, was in the, the most impoverished mm -hmm. part of Calcutta. And it's heavily populated, so lots of people. And so we were walking parallel to the tracks. And because there were so many people, I was just really close to the tracks and there was a walkway that went over like a bridge walkway that went over the tracks. And so the path between like the sidewalk and the tracks narrowed. And so at that moment, when I was going under this bridge, I just stepped too close to the tracks as a train was zipping past and it hadn't honked or anything. So mm -hmm. I didn't know what was coming. And it, the very front of the train, I know kind of what happened because, uh, British couple sent me an email, you know, a few months later saying like, Hey, we were walking to the same orphanage and we saw it happen. And so mm -hmm. this is what we saw. Cause I got a few different reports and then I have what I remember, but it's kind of spotty. Yeah. What you remember and, and what the witnesses saw are probably two very different things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to try and piece what I remember from what they tell me and try and come up with what I think is the most accurate. What they said they saw was the train came and hooked my right sleeve and the speed of the train propelled me in front of it. 
and then hit me directly as if I was standing in front of it and it would have just smashed me. And then I went head first under it, you know, so that's the only way I could have gone under the train anyway. So that must have happened mm-hmm. similarly because I went under the train and then the train went above me, over me, but one of my legs got got ran over by the wheels. But then it didn't just continue to get run over by the wheels. It got stuck to that wheel and then got lodged up above the wheel chamber and got stuck up there. And so it drugged me for a while and that stopped, you know. They had to tell the train to back up because my leg was stuck between two train wheels. So they reversed the train to get my leg loose and they pull me out. My femoral artery is severed, so I'm kind of just gushing blood. It's spraying out everywhere. You got, you know, your carotid artery and your femoral artery and your radial artery. And if you cut any of these, you know, you'll bleed out in a minute or two. And so I was also penetrated pretty deep, somewhere right next to my that's asshole. The second asshole, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, now luckily, you know, the scar tissue just matches that, mm-hmm. like, pink area right (laughs) so you know it's actually you know unless you're looking it's not that obvious well you know i imagine all the photo shoots aren't aren't that bad yeah you know i have to (laughs) warn them you know beforehand how did your head not get hit in that whole situation i mean i hate to call it lucky because the whole thing from the get-go doesn't come across as lucky comes up comes across as extremely unlucky and were you conscious at all during Oh, yeah. So you, I was still conscious after they back up the train, like this some French guy with an afro shows up in this sea of Indian people. He like emerges and he's like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And I told him, I'm like, uh, I'm like dying, bleeding out. And he's asking me. How. So he like pulls me out and I'm in shock. And I remember mm-hmm. I tried to stand up. And <laughs> my leg is a hamburger. And I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> and, I, and I stand up, and in that moment, I just a ton of blood falls out of me, and I fall back down. And I remember the second I put weight on my leg, it didn't work. It wasn't there. And I mm-hmm. just collapse back again, and I'm in shock, and I just – I kind of have, like, two near-death experiences. The first one was that moment. Mm-hmm. The next one happened, like, a week later. <laughs> but this one, I, like – as soon as I try to stand up, lose all this blood, I, I collapse back down. And I just feel super cold and everything starts to like zoom in like a tunnel and everything's like has a blue tint to it. And I Ooh. swear, I started, it was like watching a bunch of memories like, so you, on fast forward. You like, saw, so this is, I've done a little bit of research in the near-death experiences, as you know. And this tunnel is very common that people see, as well as the, uh, the life flashing before your eyes moment where you yeah. see all these kind of like a movie playing. Yeah, and that, and that is what it felt like. I, I don't really remember any of it. Like, I don't remember mm-hmm. what it looked like. I don't remember the scenes. I don't know if it was future or past. Sure. I, I'm not really sure. Did you see any uh, beings or hear any voices in that initial no. near-death experience? No, I don't think so. I I was just, uh, it was like I was watching memories kind of just mm-hmm. real quick. But they I don't even know if they were my memories or mm-hmm. not or what. I, I don't really remember. Remember how you felt in that moment? Um, not confused, not just like full of despair, full of despair. That's yeah. Just complete helplessness. Yeah. Way. Yeah. Just like not not necessarily fear, but despair. Mm-hmm. So so then I I 
thought I blacked out and they, uh, I didn't though. I did momentarily, I guess. Mm -hmm. And they put me on the back of like a bicycle rickshaw, tiny little wheelbarrow type thing. And they take me to a nearby clinic, just like right up the sidewalk, not a hospital because we're still in the slums. Mm -hmm. And they take me into this clinic and I'm still bleeding out, even though my friend had tied their scarf around my thigh. Yeah, makeshift tourniquet. Yeah. And then they take me into this, uh, like, medical clinic tent. It looked like a tent from MASH, like, you know, blood all the way up to all over the walls and tobacco spit everywhere, like, halfway up the walls, too. And they had to, like, clear off a gurney and throw me on there. And I remember, because it's, like, a teaching clinic, they weren't they weren't expecting this. Because usually mm -hmm. my surgeon, at I got transferred to a hospital the next day, and he was telling me, like, you know, I've been a surgeon in Calcutta for 30 years, and I've never met a single person that survived a train accident. They usually get decapitated, or their body shatters, their spine shatters, they blow up. You know, if you're getting hit by a train full speed, there's nothing left usually. And so, so my surgeon really liked me, and he would like sometimes keep me awake through some of the surgery, so he could like, he's like, uh, do you know Bob Dylan? Do you know the Beatles? And he's like, what's the difference between psychology and psychiatry? You know, he'd ask me yeah. all sorts of questions like this. And Did was... they even have anesthesia on site? Or did he purposely keep you awake just to... Oh, no, no. He was the anesthesiologist. <laughs> he, he himself was. So, no, this is this is the next... Uh, the following preceding weeks were at an actual, like, hospital. At the clinic, they didn't have anesthesia, uh, any anesthetics. And so they... I was awake when they chopped it off. And they, like, had to finish it off. So they, like took a bundle of a bunch of knives and there's like surgical saws in there and and then they just start hacking away at the rest of my leg a bit above where mm -hmm. the, and you're watching it all happen yeah yeah i'm screaming i'm watching i remember at first they tried to put like an oxygen mask on me like come, some of these students were while the doctor was trying to get these surgical blades and they like the oxygen wasn't even on they put it on upside down because i think you know it's, they're probably panicking yeah because this you know this is probably the, the craziest thing they've seen. Yeah. And they uh, put it, they put the mask on me. I remember being like, no, I can't breathe. <laughs> I can't breathe, you know. And so they finally, they put the mask on right. Then they start hacking off the leg. I don't remember anything after that. But my friend said I was screaming for the next two hours straight. She has PTSD from it now. Like She has PTSD. We're, we're not friends anymore. She oh, like, wow. She's from, she's like, uh, we talked, I was given a talk like a year later and she was there and she was in the back and like after everyone left, she was like crying alone in the back. So I like walk over and she's just traumatized by the story. She's like, I, I just can't hear that story. She's like, every time I do, I, I lose up your screams. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what's, what's screams? Like, you know, <laughs> like when I got hit or, and she like, you know, explained like, no, there was like two hours. Of, we were sitting behind like a cloth mm -hmm. curtain, just right next to you hearing your leg get chopped off for like hours and you're screaming like screams I've never heard in movies mm -hmm. before. It was just like uh, now, if nightmares. You, if you wouldn't have blacked out and blocked out those memories, do you think you would also have PTSD from that? Um, I mean, not maybe not consciously, but I definitely have like subconscious PTSD from certain things like, and I mean, I, I welcome it. I kind of mm -hmm. enjoy it because if anything, I can relive it and understand this really strange phenomenon that happened to me. So the more I can remember, the better, I think. But the subconscious PTSD is like, uh, I was watching Tom and Jerry right after the accident with my little brother and like, you know, the cat's tail got stabbed and my phantom foot that I no longer have, it just starts like gushing with electrical pain. And I'm like, ah, oh. 
is really terrifying. That's interesting too. That, yeah, that that would happen. A well, subconscious form of PTSD that you don't, you're not even really aware of. Yeah, that's how it feels because like it still to this day is triggered all the time by random stuff and not triggered by stuff mm -hmm. that I would assume it would be. But a lot of times if someone steps on a light bulb or I think they're about to step on a light bulb or a nail, that triggers it. It's it's that's sharp right. sharp objects with the foot. I don't know. And most of my phantom pain is not where my amputation site happened. I don't have and phantom pain is where like yeah, your brain isn't shutting off the signals that are sending electrical impulses mm -hmm. to your missing limb. And so you think it's still there. It feels like it's still there. I mean, I kind of like phantom pain because it kind of makes you feel remember like what it was like to have your leg. Exactly. Like you have two legs again, kind of. So like, but sometimes it really sucks. And like, I have to almost pull over when I'm driving. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it feels like someone's cutting your toes off with scissors and you're just what it's screaming. So do you, can you manage that pain at all anymore? Uh, no, I, I don't. They, did have me on a drug for the first year after it called gabapentin. And that's oh, yeah, I've taken that. It yeah. sort of works. Yeah, it's a it's a seizure medication because mm -hmm. it blocks the neurotransmitter GABA in your brain. So it's supposed to shut off those impulses that are just too too heavy in your brain. But mm -hmm. they, uh, I stopped because it causes psychosis, long term use. And they had this one episode where they like upped my dosage because I was having more nerve pain. So they increased my dosage by like 500 milligrams. And then I started having like that week, I was having like a psychological meltdown. I like spilled my soup and I was dead. I was like devastated. Like wanted to die. I was just like, oh. <laughs> Not the usual response to soup spilling. Yeah, it was tomato. But still. <laughs> and and they called the doctor and like, oh, this is actually kind of common with gabapentin. I bet it's because we just finished his dosage. Mm -hmm. And then so I look it up and I see that it causes like massive psychosis. Mm -hmm. There's people that say like, oh, I was in six months in a mental health institution because of this. Holy and moly. Like one person's like, yeah, it messed me up for years. And so I'm like, I, I should, I, you know, I've been on this three doses a day, every day for a year. You know, maybe I should quit. And so I did. I just kind of. Not to mention, I've, I've noticed with gabapentin, it didn't help that much. Yeah. It was very minuscule and yeah. in, in it's actual therapeutic effect. Yeah. I don't even know what it did do. I mean, I know that once I, once I quit, my nerve pain increased in intensity but less frequent mm -hmm. so while i was on it my nerve pain was almost worse but not quite as intense but it was like constant like mm -hmm. a constant buzzing like you're touching a really weak electric fence all the time it's just uh, aggravating more than anything else. yeah and like, so it's kind of nice if you're you know going to work or whatever it's it's not so bad but if you're just trying to relax it's just always there yeah you know so i want to go to when you were waking up from the first amputation. Yeah, that's... What were your first thoughts? How did you feel? And, like, what was your game plan at that moment in, in your life? Well, I was pretty devastated. I, I wasn't really surprised. I woke up with no memory of the previous day. I woke up in a proper hospital and I kind of look around and I'm in like a big ICU room by myself with like open windows to the lobby and like a mango tree outside and I remember like not being surprised and just kind of taking it all in just looking around I look at my arms they're like shaved there's no more hair on my arms I'm like all right one of my legs is all wrapped up in bandages like when you sprain your ankle Mm -hmm. And then the other one's missing. 
<laughs> I'm like, okay, what did I do last night? But I, it, you know, it didn't really surprise me that much. It was just like, okay. And then my friend came in and said, hey, you were hit by a train yesterday. I don't know how much you remember. And then you had to cut your leg off. You weren't sure you were going to make it. They told us they might have to cut both of them off. Which, I don't know why they would have told her that, because the other one's fine. <laughs> it, it got a few stitches and, like, a bunch of tar from the train that dipped on it. But otherwise, like, you know, I didn't even, I didn't break anything, though. I didn't break a rib. I did crack my tooth. But, so I was just really, like, I knew it. As she was explaining it to me, I knew what she was talking about. Because, obviously, I had been awake, but I mm-hmm. just didn't really, I was blocking it, I guess. And I was like, oh, wow. And I was just really... You know, I was still, I was still myself. I remember, like, they were when they were actually transferring me from the clinic to the hospital. They put me in the back of like an, like a seventies V dub van. That was their ambulance, and they like, <laughs> and I remember like, I'm like, I kind of look like a pirate, like Lloyd Christmas, because like, I was making, I'm like, dude, this chipped and so. Uh, so I was still in good spirits, but I was just overwhelmed with pain, so mm-hmm. I couldn't even focus on anything. I was just, and they weren't really giving me painkillers they gave me one dose of fentanyl every morning but that's like a tylenol for me it was like mm-hmm. nothing so i was just really and that pretty much just it stayed like that for the first week i was just really miserable i couldn't really sleep i didn't eat anything really for the first month i didn't really eat anything i couldn't poop i couldn't i couldn't even sit up in bed and i was just like too i was in too much pain to be sad i wasn't even really all I didn't really have time to think about that. I was just mm-hmm. constant pain every single day, like, oh, like every day. And if I tried to eat something, I'd barf. I had some grape whelp juice or, or whatever it's called. Whelp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was really good. And then I puked it up. And, I went, <laughs> and then, you know, I had to sit there as this, like, old Indian woman, like, change my bed sheets around me as I'm still laying there. And just, like, she's my only friend in the world right now. Like, what? and uh, yeah. What was the first uh, chance of hope that you had? Like, after all this happened, you're in these Indian hospitals. Was there ever a moment where you saw a glimmer of hope? Yeah, I mean, that, I would say that was my second near-death experience. And that happened at the end of the first week. The doctor, my surgeon came in, and he's like, okay, we're going we're gonna to try and make you poop because you, you haven't all week, and so we're going we're gonna to lift you up. So we're going to make you sit up in bed, and then we're going to have two guys lift you up and put you on this little metal commode toilet. And we're just going to leave you there for, like, you know, 15, 20 minutes and see. So they lift me up, and it was just, like, so painful for me to bend at the waist to sit up. And then they slide my leg off the side of the bed. So I'm, like, touching the floor for the first time. I'm really nervous. Like, I'm not going to – I don't know. Was it what I'm going to be standing up for the first time. Mm-hmm. And they like lift me up, my legs like not even really touching the floor because they're like lifting me up by my armpits. And then they release a little bit to give me some weight and my leg just collapses. It doesn't doesn't work. I can't put any weight on it. So I'm just totally devastated thinking I'm paralyzed, thinking I'm like, great, I'm never going to walk again. I'm just going to be in a wheelchair. And uh, so I'm like, I start crying. I'm just so like heartbroken and they lift me up and they put me in this little chair and they have to like take off all these bandages because I had this puncture wound right next to my 
butthole, and so they have to take off this giant, like, diaper that they mm-hmm. made around me, and that takes, like, forever. Then they leave, and I'm sitting there, like, just crying. <laughs> I can't. And I, you know, I didn't poop. By the mm-hmm. end, you know, long story short, didn't poop. But my, all the windows were open, so I had a bunch of, like, there was a ton of kids taking pictures with their phones and like which I didn't you know I didn't mind too much because I like had already observed that you know this is at the rise of smartphones kind of in 2011 mm-hmm. and it, you know people were just fascinated you know some white guys in our hospital and he's taking a poop right here like you know I'd be taking a picture too and uh so that just it, I just felt so vulnerable I was probably at my most vulnerable state I've ever been in in my life you know trying to poop naked being filmed in a glass cage, missing a leg, you know, and they come back in, they put me back in bed, my surgeon, like, let's make sure it's all clean down there, I was, they put the little diaper thing back on, and it was like, he was really rough, and it hurt, and I was just like, Ugh. and that just, and then he left, and I was just like, the most, I know you asked, <laughs> moment of hope, the most despair, the whole <laughs> time was right then, and I was just like, so devastated and I started thinking about house because I already really liked the tv show house mm-hmm. and like I was like I'm just going to be this bitter cripple for the rest of my life this is how it starts this is how it goes and I was like I just I don't want to be like that I, I really don't want to be bitter I don't want to be just depressed and and hate my life and and that's where I'm going and I'm just I I'm never going to be able to walk again and I I can't even poop I can't even do anything mm-hmm. and I was just like overwhelmed with all of these fears and I just had like a really weird like like breathing moment where I just got like a gush of like fresh air and I told people for the preceding months it felt like liquid gold I said it felt like God was pouring liquid gold down my throat like I, I would like I was like, <gasps> for like a minute like mm-hmm. taking it in it it felt like I was like Neo in the Matrix when he's being uploaded with all of this like intel of like I can do jujitsu and kung fu now. <laughs> it kind of felt like this weird yeah. moment of like, but like mental revelations about the world. And I was just in that moment, I'm thinking like, oh, all of this stuff makes sense, and oh wow. And was and, it as if that breathing was telling you, as long as this is here, it's not over? Pretty much. No, no. It was like, it felt like. Every like I had grown up and taught in the church my whole life, and mm-hmm. it felt more real than anything I'd ever read about. It felt more real than the stuff I've read about Moses. It was like, oh, this is what people are. These are the moments people are talking about. Mm-hmm. Like this is, and so it just made me feel like every experience I'd ever had in church was just totally fake up to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, in comparison to this, it was just like, oh, I was pretending. Clearly, this is what it actually feels now, like when you're. I've had a similar experience on LSD, but it was with water. And, and tell me if this is similar. It, it's as if something you've always known is finally, it finally kind of means something. Like we've always known air is, is very important. Our breathing is very important. But it's kind of the difference between seeing a picture of Mount Rainier and being there, yeah, seeing it. Exactly. It, it, it takes on a whole new level of significance. Yeah, and it was the air itself that felt significant. You're right. It was like I kept on taking these big breaths. And at the same moment, I was like, probably what triggered this moment was I was listening to some music. It was, a, it was Andrew Bird, right? No, no, no. It was uh, Angus and Julius Stone, a song <laughs> called Mango Tree. And I was like looking at the mango tree outside, 
And I just had this mental image of like someone on a surfboard, like diving under the wave, like underwater and then emerging up. And that just like wrecked me. That image, that mental imagery, all of a sudden, this moment just started happening. And I started like feeling like I was being waterboarded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, I, it was just, that lasted for a while. And I felt like I was having some weird, I mean, I can't even really recall what was all going through my head. Mm-hmm. But it, it just felt like everything was now kind of made sense. And I was just like overwhelmed with joy and like everything made sense. I didn't even kind of question it. I was like, oh, I'm so happy this happened to me because now I can relate with people that are suffering. And it like totally changed me. For, it lasted and stayed exactly like that for like two months. Well, after I came back to Seattle mm-hmm. and then it kind of diminished a little bit and it's still kind of there in the background. But but man, that those first two months were it was weird. And mm-hmm. I wasn't on any drugs, but it was like I was high as a kite. Mm-hmm. And I was so I remember happy. seeing you at Harborview. My mom and I uh, came by and dropped you off some blueberries. And, and you did seem you did seem like way more hopeful and gracious than we would have expected someone who had just gotten hit by a train would. Um, so going back to how it, it made you kind of look back at your church experiences like they were nothing. On the other side of that coin, did it make you look at experiences in in the Bible and kind of read them through a different light? Like, for example, um, uh, when it says God breathed life into man, did that stuff like that take on a whole different meaning? I mean, not not much. It did a bit to, like, the extent that it felt more, some things felt more real, but not the stories themselves didn't yeah. feel more real. It was, it was more like there's, there was something to this that was more real, but mm-hmm. it, you know, for me, it was still like, well, these are still like, you know, God breathed. There's still stories that the Hebrews would tell themselves about the power of, of uh, air and breath and oxygen and, there's this whole thing about how they believed that Yahweh is actually all the Hebrew letters are actually mm-hmm. different iterations of breath and how you breathe like yod hey vah I've heard that narrative before. Yeah, and so there's there's a lot to it, but mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily have some more special attachment to the path or like oh wow now it feels more real because I felt something that was more real. I didn't really feel like that still. Yeah, I mean, but, in a way you go full circle and in another way everything you knew was destroyed yeah yeah that's that's definitely true I, it i i luckily already had kind of a unique and historical grounding in in the bible and so luckily like this didn't totally shake my worldview when it happened it was this mm-hmm was within the realm of things that are okay that happen in my worldview. Mm-hmm. So, like, if, you, if I had trained, I wasn't like, oh, this is, you know, this was destiny or this is <laughs> such and such's fault. It was like, no, accidents happen. So, in a previous podcast uh, that you did with uh, the other people, um, you mentioned how it could have been either God or it could have just been chemicals in your brain. Now, when you deconstruct things to being just chemicals, doesn't it sort of become paradoxical? Because the chemicals in your brain are telling you that it was just chemicals. So if you can trust the chemicals in your brain to tell you it was just chemicals, could you also trust the chemicals that provided you with that spiritual experience to tell you that it was a spiritual experience? Well, no, I don't think so. Because for me, one, 
leads to the other, but not in the reverse. So like you don't have examples of chemical reactions that are produced because of spiritual connections. So as far as we know, and I don't know because these things are not well investigated, so we don't know much. True. Mainly because they're just the nature of the questions are hard to figure out what you're asking and how to study it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that's due to just the limits of our own 3D equatorial minds. But for me, I, I feel like, you know, if it was, as you were saying, like, well, you could interpret it both ways. If you're only the result of whatever's happening, this whatever concoction is happening, then couldn't you? But it's just like a schizophrenic. Like, if you have schizophrenia and you're seeing stuff that isn't actually there, how are you to know that it isn't there if you didn't have an outside party to tell you that or, or something like that? But it's... Be, I think when it comes to some sort of spiritual thing, if it was, I think that when you have chemical reactions that feel very real, they, they are real. They, they're real to you, whether or not they are real on some sort of metaphysical plane of where these are coming from. I mean, I have no doubt that they're coming from my mind. I mean, why why would another being interfere in the chemistry of my brain in the moment the chemistry of my brain is shutting down because it was hit by a train mm -hmm. so for me it just makes more sense that it it would be it was tight i mean i wasn't hit by a train i guess this is a week later after that mm -hmm. and i wasn't on any drugs and so other than the fentanyl i had like eight hours prior but you know that was mm -hmm. well faded and i had already been having that and that doesn't cause euphoria that's a depressant so yeah i mean you know you never know if there's some sort of right ritual you can physically do to access some sort of spiritual connection or realm or something mm -hmm. like like are all the pieces stacked up and arranged in just the right specific way just like you know an alchemy cantation you know if you everything mm -hmm. is set up in just the right precise mechanism, then it will... Or an ayahuasca ceremony or something. Yeah, it'll elicit some sort of response. But, you know, I I don't think so. But that's just me being a scientist and saying, sure. like, I think there would be too much... There are too many variables for it to have uh, worked. And I don't think I can really recreate the scenario. But even if I was, I mean, I don't know. I'm open to thinking it was something else but I it just seems more plausible that with everything that was going on to me mentally that it would have been some sort of weird psychological processing mm -hmm. that I was doing subconsciously because I mean I, I do believe that there are enormous aspects to our subconscious that we don't understand and that we and cognitive science has no idea to even really investigate yet and so you know studies show that even our most like detailed and basic actions are subconscious like even me picking this up right now like when mm -hmm. i pick something up you're not thinking about every finger going around yeah and well and if you do like brain studies they show that the neurons are firing prior to you even moving prior to you picking something up you were already planning to do that thing and so it seems that almost everything the further we investigate it almost seems like more than we were ever imagining is subconscious and so 
and we still have no mm -hmm. idea how to investigate that. So simplified, how did this accident shape your spirituality from what it was to what it is now? Would you put a label on what it is now, or, or would you avoid labels? No, I'd probably avoid it. I, I don't think it, <clears throat> it doesn't feel like it changed. I, it feels pretty consistent. It feels, uh, I mean, I'm open to things that are outside of my access to this dimension. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm open to figuring out the real world. And I don't think that science has always done a very good job of investigating that. And so I do know that we are very naive and we, we in the history of science have been very confident. And so I, I have a lot of skepticism mm -hmm. with just saying like, oh yeah, some random chemicals or whatever. But until I have better a better hypothesis, that's what I'm sticking with for now. Okay. But, I'm just going to touch a little bit more on these near, this near-death experience before we move on here. Did you have any out-of-body experiences at all? I don't think so. I, I might I might have the very first one when mm -hmm. I tried to stand up, because I do have a, like an aerial-type memory, but... But I all, but it's more so distracted because I'm remembering mm -hmm. that tunnel thing. Yeah. But I almost do feel like there was that could have just be like me envisioning, like imagining what it would have looked like. So I don't know. But I don't think so. And would you agree that even though you've tried to explain it, they're ultimately ineffable? Yeah. 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 I, that would too. <laughs> uh, you didn't see any loved ones or, or beings in the second one at all. Um, no. Did your personality change? Yeah, I think so. I, I look not much, not much. In what, it, in what ways did it change? Do you think? I think I got more. I think I got a little bit more humble and a lot more empathetic. Before I was a lot more arrogant, and I, so I think it. it uh, but some of that unfortunately diminished a few, <laughs> a few months later. But uh, but it gave me a taste. Yeah, it gave me a very good taste of how I ought to behave. I uh, did. You feel convicted of of having some sort of purpose on earth after that kind of like you had a mission or something no i it felt more like instead of the ends justifying the means it felt like the means themselves were ends unto themselves and so like every action itself felt like the totality of my action like mm -hmm. so instead of trying to do something for some end it was like treating treating people like themselves are the end, not using mm -hmm. people as means to an end, you know? And so that I think definitely changed for me and I'm trying to keep it that way. And so I guess that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people after they have a near-death experience, they experience synchronicities or they'll become vegetarian or start eating less meat. I, that, yeah, I did. I did actually become a vegetarian afterwards. And it was it was probably a year later because I saw an image of my leg that I hadn't seen before from India. And I was like mm -hmm. flipping through some pictures from India. And I saw one and I didn't know what it was at first because like ground hamburger and stuff. And then I realized it was my leg. And I was like, it was like pornographic. I turned it as fast <laughs> as I could. And I was like, but I was like in like enchanted by it. I mm -hmm. wanted to look at it again. I'm like, yeah. no, don't do it. And I, that it stayed like that for a while. And that made you a vegetarian. Uh, I For mean, a while. I was already leaning that way because I got into a bunch of research with antibiotics mm -hmm. and and stuff. And so I, I, I mean, I still eat some seafood. 
And, but yeah, it, uh, it definitely shifted me because I just felt more connection to nature, more mm -hmm. connection to animals, more connection and just love and empathy for everything. Mm -hmm. it, going back to that in treating people as ends yeah. and not themselves. And back to the synchronicities. By synchronicities, I mean, you start uh, realizing things as being more significant than they might be. Like, uh, some might call them coincidences through the day that you stop seeing as coincidences. Yeah, well... I still see them as coincidences. Of course. But those happen a lot. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange because uh, a lot of near-death experiencers do have increased synchronicities like that. Did you feel like you were smarter afterwards? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I I mean, I felt like I had like uh, some new weird perspective on the Bible almost. And I'm not even yeah. saying that it's all about that. Mm -hmm. But I... It was definitely more of a, like, in the moment, I was like, you know what? The whole crucifixion of Jesus makes a lot more sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like, in this moment, like, suffering and all of this. and blah, it, Suffering just seemed to make so much more sense to me afterwards. Hmm. Um, did your love for humankind change? Was it increased after that? Oh, yeah, substantially. I was like... I was obsessed with surgeries mm -hmm. while I was in India. There was like an Indian couple. Mm -hmm. Like I said, like my, because I all of a sudden had this weird, like euphoria, like I was on acid every, every minute or on Molly. It was more like Molly. <laughs> and I was just like rolling every minute. And it was just like, everything was the best. It honestly felt exactly like you're on Molly. Like I saw their baby. I was like, oh my goodness. I was just like, what's what's his name, you know, and I was just, like, obsessed, I thought it was the most beautiful thing in the world, I was, like, crying, and then there was, like, someone in a burn unit right next to me, and I, like, sent her and gave a note to the nurse, like, passed her. it was, like, everyone was so significant to me, everything mm -hmm. was so significant, I would just, like, take my time with everyone mm -hmm. and everything, and it just, it really felt like I was rolling. <laughs> uh, would you say you became more childlike afterwards, then? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you also changed careers afterwards, right? Yeah. Yeah, I went into science. I wanted to do history and psychology and then uh, all this exposure. So that's crazy because based off of everything I've researched from near-death experiences, that is all extremely common with near-death experiences. And you filled out pretty much every single one, yeah. which is, I, I think, kind of significant for the near-death experience itself. Um, yeah. So let's uh, move on. Well, before, before I move on, I just want to touch one more thing on near-death experiences. Uh, they say that the difference between a delusion and something like a near-death experience is that a delusion affects the individual negatively. A uh, near-death experience affects someone positively and, and gets them to make drastic changes in their life that benefit themselves and others. Um, it's more of a comment, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's a good point so let's go on to uh your later struggles with the super virus yeah uh so well, su super bug super bug. super bug because super it's bacteria bug. not viral but, okay <laughs> super bug my bad yeah no that's right so when did you find out that you had the super bug was it right after getting back to seattle yeah not not before that even though i did have a bunch of surgeries they tested my blood when I came back to Harborview in Seattle and they came back the next day and they said we have to put you in isolation because you have uh, 
some type of resistant gene that we uh, have never seen before. And we sent some samples to the CDC and we're not really sure how to treat it. So we looked for some treatment options uh, on some forums on the internet. So it's, it, everything sounded very like... Uh, like you were a test subject. Yeah, like they were grasping for straws. And he's like, look, there's a, like we don't know. There's a 50% chance this could just kill you. We, I have no idea. We've never dealt with this before, but this is something that's been like on on the rise recently. And uh, so they had to put me in isolation and then start treating me with kind of like chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. They're these really toxic old antibiotics, one called colistin. And that was kind of their last resort in the first place. Yeah, that's what they were avoiding because colistin is really toxic and they kind of try to keep it under lock and key so that way, like, bacteria won't evolve resistance. Because mm -hmm. the more you use it, then the bacteria, it creates a selective pressure mm -hmm. and the selective pressure causes the bacteria to mutate its uh, protein codes and it will start changing the types of infrastructure around its body so instead of having a bridge made out of cement it's like having a bridge made out of ceramic or rubber or you know and so it changes the inside nature so that way the antibiotics no longer work because if you create a, a detonation fuse for a concrete bridge and all of a sudden you show up to the bridge and it's made of rubber it might not blow up the same mm -hmm. and so that's why that's how bacteria and, you know, resistance isn't necessarily human-caused because we found in the Arctic, like, 30,000-year-old bacteria that have resistance to streptomycin and penicillin and all sorts of stuff already. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, so they, they evolve these naturally. You know, bacteria are the most ancient forms of life on the planet mm -hmm. and with the antibacteria as well. And they will naturally fight antibiotics. Antibiotics are made by bacteria and by funguses to fight each other off. Mm -hmm. And so they will inhibit other ones to outcompete them. And so for me, I had five different infections and all of them shared this one tool of resistance. It's called NDM1, which stands for New Delhi Metallobilactamase. Uh, lactamase is just this type of enzyme that all of these bacteria share. And so it's it's like you have a bunch of different countries, but all of these countries have rubber bridges. So they have something in common. Mm -hmm. So it's very similar to that, where it's like I had five different bacteria, but they all share this one tool in their body that mutated to make like uh, antibiotics no longer work. And that's what made them superbugs, the exactly. fact that they were resistant to antibiotics. Yeah, all antibiotics. All right? antibiotics. Yeah. So what did that really mean for you at the end of the day with these five infections that couldn't be fought with antibiotics? Well, that they had to do ex experimental treatments, do a lot more surgeries to just try and cut out the infection because it it pushes us towards a post-antibiotic era. We had a pre-antibiotic era for the first you know, 10,000 years of human history or human civilization, we had uh, these antibiotics worked great since the first one in, in 1928 from Alexander Fleming with penicillin mm -hmm. that he found he was really... Saved millions of lives. Yeah, he was really messy and, and they found out that this spore from a mold lab right underneath his at St. Mary's College in 
in Edinburgh like came up and it uh, infected his and killed the bacteria. And he's like, oh, wow. But he ignored it, kept on studying something else. And this pre-era, before we had antibiotics, you know, Alexander Fleming was really concerned about making antibiotics because in World War I, he just saw the devastation of trench warfare. You know, soldier, most of the soldiers die from infections because they're in the mud and mud is full of soil bacteria like Pseudomotus and this gets into your cuts and your boots and it would just wipe out people. And so he was looking at tears because tears have things called lysosomes that like fight infection. Interesting. And so he was looking at that and he abandoned antibiotics after he discovered it. And it was only because these guys found a, his paper like a decade later and they're like, hey, you discovered antibiotics. And, and he's like, oh, well, it wasn't. And so they developed it into a pill and they all three shared the Nobel Prize in 1945 and they put it into World War II in 1942. They started using it for soldiers and it was just unlimited amounts just to cure every infection. You just boom, boom, boom. And so we started using penicillin crazy. But, you know, for me, what that meant when they didn't have any treatment options left for me, when they're like, okay, well, we're going to hopefully cut it out and give you an experimental, really dangerous thing that'll kill you just as fast and as that was the it. start of the sea that was yeah, a colistin colistin now how yeah. did that affect you what were the side effects of the colistin it was a poison it was it felt like like the layers around all of my organs were disintegrating like it felt like my intestines were rubbing against my liver and it was like every moment it was worse in india i just wanted to just fall apart i I couldn't even watch TV in my hospital bed. I was just like, I was on IV antibiotics for months. And it, uh, it, it ruins your kidneys. It ruins your immune system. So my white blood cell count was dropping. And I had to go on a bunch of like healthy bacteria. Like they made me drink a bunch of kombucha all the time because it has probiotics in it, which are really good for your gut. Mm -hmm. And because I was on all these nasty antibiotics, they're wiping out all the natural bacteria that live inside mm -hmm. of you. Because there's just as many bacteria that live in you as humans. So they actually had to manually put um, bacteria in you. Now, yeah. I'm curious how they do that, because a friend of mine told me their their grandma had to have that done, too. Did she, uh, well... Which way does that go in? <laughs> so I'm guessing but she has a fecal transplant. I did not have that. <laughs> I, I But there is a lot of work being done to show how efficient that is and it and actually the best candidate is not a family member but a roommate someone that shares the same environment as you interesting and it kind of kickstarts like a jumping a battery it kind of kickstarts your immune system again because a lot of your immune system is fought by your natural immunity cells your natural killer t cells your t cells your b cells all of these things really do help with that but bacteria that live inside of you are probably your first line of defense. The bacteria on your skin. That's why you know if you use if you wash your hands and use uh, antibacterial soap. Yeah, too often it's it's not too good because you're depriving. Even a lot of people will break out more acne in their face because they use too harsh of chemicals on their face and they kill the good bacteria that mm -hmm. that actually keep your face clear. Yeah, and you're leaving room for for bad bacteria. Yeah, exactly. And and so yeah, I, I had to take these. Uh, they would just give me pill tablets to swallow good bacteria. I didn't have to get any uh, fecal good. transplants. That's but, good. but there is a lot to be said about fecal transplants. Yeah, I'm just surprised that was even a thing. <laughs> I mean... Um, so how... 
What is the main cause of these superbugs throughout the world? Well, of course, as I said, it is, it does happen naturally. It has been happening for at least a million years, as we can tell. Well, so does global warming. Exactly. And, and it, the rate at which we see it now is unprecedented because, yes, bacteria naturally always, by necessity, will evolve resistance. But the, the antibiotics that are made from bacteria... And then in response, the resistance enzymes called lactamases. So you got lactam antibiotics and then lactamase, which means it's an enzyme. And so some bacteria will evolve a carbon structure that's a four carbon ring structure called a lactam ring. And that's an antibiotic. We call them beta-lactam antibiotics. And that's our general class of most antibiotics. And if one bacteria, it's like an arms race, you know, mm -hmm. and if one starts making a ton of these lactam rings, the other will start by selective pressure mm -hmm. mutating uh, enzymes that use hydrolysis. So they use water like a squirt gun to squirt apart these little rings. So they basically have like a four, like a square, strong antibiotic that looks like a square, like the carbon ring makes a square mm -hmm. and they use heated up squirt guns to break that square apart and then the antibiotics broken and so that's how it works and but you know these are low numbers when we mm -hmm. talk about naturally occurring resistance in the wild it's just these bacteria when we started making penicillin in the 40s and streptomycin and all these other antibiotics we started farming them like like huge amounts you know so instead of just a few you would have you know billions that mm -hmm. we would just make unlimited amounts well the bacteria are not evolving as quickly as we're making antibiotics so it was just natural that eventually they would catch up and start mm -hmm. the more we put antibiotics into nature the more it will cause selective pressure around the world and you know back in the 50s they were adding it to they were adding penicillin to milk they were adding it to everything to as a growth enhancer because it mm -hmm. was shown that in agriculture, if you give animals low doses of antibiotics on a regular basis, they increase in muscle mass times four. Mm -hmm. like, and so it's like if you are McDonald's or if you're Burger King or uh, any of the other meat distributors that they buy out from, like one company is called 100% Real Beef is the name of the company. Uh, but I swear to God, <laughs> that's, that's the that's the copyright name of it. Uh, and, I get you. And so they use these distributors, but these distributors a lot of times don't really have uh, data on what type of antibiotics they're using or even how much. They just kind of have bulk numbers. You don't even know how many animals actually are sick. Is mm -hmm. this prophylactic, like you're giving it before they get sick, or is this to treat sick animals, or how are you using this? They don't report any of that to the FDA. When the FDA investigates these factory farms, they give them three months' notice a lot of times before they even go. They have, which, uh, which at that point is, just destroys the data. Yeah, and a lot of times they these places they have uh, illegal immigrants working there, so they can't report on. They won't report on stuff, or if they're mm -hmm. sick, they're not going to report it really. And so that gives them an extra like step away from what's happening this most of this is in the midwest 
Was anyone raising the red flag back in the 50s for this? Was, any, was there any sort of uh, hesitation? Well, Alexander Fleming mentioned it in his Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> like acceptance speech in 1945. He mentioned that they will become resistant the more you use it, so just FYI. So we knew that this could happen, but mm -hmm. I guess... It was all about short-term gain. Yeah, and, and the idea of a systemic issue. Again, the first time we ever even saw allergies in the literature academic literature was like 1960s. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, people were allergic before that, but we didn't just see the massive number of allergies that we see now. And so obesity and allergy rates started going up in the 60s at the same time we were pumping in antibiotics to everything. And, and there is a, a lot of work being done at New York University by someone named Dr. Martin Blazer. He does uh, uh, the American Gut Micro Project which is a sister mm -hmm. project of the British Gut Micro Project at King's College of London. A guy named Tim Spector studies it there. And they show that they, in New York University, they feed rats low amounts of antibiotics, and all of these rats develop diabetes, obesity, like all of them. And that's because you would assume because this wild bacteria that the penicillin or the antibiotics kill actually help prevent allergies, exactly. prevent obesity. They're actually extremely necessary for our survival. That, and in terms of fattening things up, that happens because the antibiotic just, it makes your metabolism process sugars and fats different mm -hmm. and not as efficiently. And so that's why it increases muscle mass and weight and bulk. And so you can feed up your cattle. Just screws up your insulin usage and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's something I never knew. Yeah. Um, so I know you met with, uh, was it Michael Taylor, mm -hmm. the uh, deputy director of the FDA and yeah. former top Monsanto lobbyist. Yeah. Now, how does a former Monsanto lobbyist get in a position of power at the FDA? Yeah. Well, it's kind of a revolving door for a lot of people. And, you know, it, it's, it's something called a command economy. So you, the people that are supposed to be regulated by the government then get empowered to regulate the companies that they had previously worked at. And, you know, it's like putting a kid in charge of the candy straw. So, <laughs> <laughs> and this is pretty common. This happened with mm -hmm. the Pie pie. Yeah, FCC, yeah, he was uh, from Comcast and then he, or Verizon yeah. and then he became head of the, whatever it's called. FCC, yeah, he, that's one example. Then, I mean, Trump's first Secretary of State was Rex Tillerson, who was the CEO of ExxonMobil gas company. Uh, he put the guy of, what is it, Carl Jr. I don't even know what he was in charge of, but he's not in there anymore. But you see this, I mean, it's not just him, though. Obama did this also. Mm -hmm. So did Bush. So did Clinton. Uh, ever since Reagan... Well, really, actually, ever since Carter, this has been pretty common to put. Ever since after JFK, really. Yeah, well, that uh, JFK is probably the worst president in American history, but <laughs> he's, a, he's a war criminal. Legally invaded South Vietnam. Aren't they all war criminals? Yes, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, so this has been very common mm -hmm. to just put people that should be regulated uh and don't get me wrong, I'm not a fan of, of state power, state control, but at the same time, unfortunately, in our dystopian world we live in now, the federal government in some instances is the only protection we do have against 
Starbucks, Amazon, mm-hmm. stuff like that. The so, corporations have kind of monopolized power in our, exactly. in our country. Yeah, exactly. So when you met with Michael Taylor, was he reasonable at all? Did he actually listen to what you guys had to say? Or was it just kind of like a, you know, kind of just like a show? Yeah, it was definitely a show. He was, he was just even condescending in his tone. And just like before one of the scientists with Pew Research Foundation, before they even finished presenting, we were like having breakfast with him in Washington, D.C., at Pew headquarters right next to Congress. And so the FDA deputy commissioner is meeting with us and he's talking and, you know, we were having breakfast first and then we started saying what we're concerned about, what we'd like the FDA to take more seriously, specifically the data that veterinarians are using at factory farms. Like we want some accountability. So we know like what drugs are they using? How much drugs are they using? And are they using it for all animals or just sick ones or, anything mm-hmm. and he was like yeah i'm sorry there just isn't much we can do until we get more data well yeah that's why we're here trying to ask if you guys could collect more data that's <laughs> kind of the whole point of us being here and so he was he didn't give any concessions he didn't say like i really understand what you're saying i'm really sorry this really is a problem we're trying to fix it i mean he definitely he took my like i explained my story personally there was another a hog farmer that had like 10,000 hogs and he got hit by one of his hogs, like one of their tusks ripped him and he fell in his pig pen because he had like a farm of 10,000 of them Mm -hmm. and he got a super bug from it because he had been, he had made super bugs on his hog farm that didn't exist before, Mm -hmm. but because he just started pumping them off oral full of antibiotics, just caused a selective pressure. So the bacteria naturally mutated resistance really Mm -hmm. quick and he he almost lost his leg. So... (laughs) So you, you bring all this information to the table with him, and it must be extremely discouraging to find out he's just an actor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't understand quite the, the politics at the time too much. of like, like, I did, but I didn't understand that he had worked for Monsanto previously mm-hmm. or anything like that until the the people at Pew started, like, telling me afterwards, like, that it went how we were expecting it to go. He's never really gives us that much hope. And, and that's kind of true in general across the fda i think there was a recent book i don't remember what it's called something about dangerous pills or something mm-hmm. but uh it it reports this fda investigator who uh goes to india and he's a young investigator peter or something mm-hmm. and he is just astounded that the the organization in India is assuming that he's going to be like really cushy. They take him to the mall, they take him to movies, they pick him up from the airport in a limousine. Mm-hmm. But they don't know. He's like a younger guy at the yeah, FDA. Actually, and he's kind of like Indiana, yeah, and he's kind of like Indiana Jones a little bit. So they don't know like he's looking to uncover some dirt. And uh, he ended up uncovering a bunch of uh, illegal activities at a pharmaceutical company that was not only supplying all generic drugs to America, but also like 90% of the rest of the world, mm-hmm. you know? And so there was only parts of the pharmaceutical plant that he was even allowed to investigate. Uh, there was a lot of other stuff he wasn't allowed to walk over there. Him and a microbiologist were walking and they see a man like turn a corner with a black bag. He stops at the end of the hall turns around starts sprinting so they they run down the hall after him 
he ditches the bag under some stairs. It, he keeps on pursuing him. The microbiologist opens it up and looks, and inside are a bunch of fabricated documents from something called NMRs, which are the chemical registers. So, like, if you want to see what's inside of a Tylenol, you give a, a chemical reading. It will tell you every molecule that's in this drug. Mm -hmm. And so they were copying the brand names, so like Tylenol by Bayer Pharmaceutical. They were copying the NMR printouts for that and just changing the label for the generic drug at the top. So when the FDA tells us here that if you get a generic drug, it should be the same as name brand. Mm -hmm. But if they're cheating on their tests in India, then... So that's why we need pharmaceutical plants in our own country, too. Mm -hmm. and, and, and places should usually make their own medicine so that way... It, or at least just have yeah. a little bit more accountability, but we don't really have access to the accountability in other countries. So I understand you currently do policy work for uh, SIDRAP, the Center for Infectious Disease and Research and Policy. Mm -hmm. What kind of troubles do you have with trying to convince or persuade corporations to work alongside you? Because I imagine, you know, with, with people that don't want to budge, you kind of have to approach with a different strategy, kind of have to play their game a little. Mm -hmm. So do you have any examples of... Uh, how you were successful, and even if it's minutely successful, and and helping change policy. Um, I'd say no. <laughs> Probably not yet. Not yet. Uh, but you know, I've only been doing it like a year, mm -hmm. so I. But I mean, you got to be really careful. I've had a couple places where I've spoken, and I was less careful and I was glad that I was less careful because I just said exactly what I thought condemned them not too strictly I just kind of said facts and that's about it but it just made them look really bad and but at the same time like you want to get them on board you want to mm -hmm. sometimes you have to kind of paint things in their language so that way you can at least manipulate them and get away with it if they think you know they're mm -hmm. going to be praised for it if you can somehow manipulate them into thinking that like you're going to look really good if you do this actually really good thing. <laughs> yeah, if you, if, you, if you can make them money in a way. But that hasn't... Uh, I'm not, I don't exactly like to do that, so mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of experience with that. Uh, but but I, I do... Like, when I, I spoke at something at the CDC and, and the guy that spoke before me, Alex Azar, the mm -hmm. Trump Secretary of Health and Human Services, he... Uh, was like praising McDonald's and Petco throughout his talk. And then we, and then after he finished, we watched a four minute Petco commercial, which had nothing to do with antibiotics. Mm -hmm. It was about Petco. And we're in this like huge auditorium with like 600 people. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And it's like, this is what happens when you put corporate lobbyists in, in charge of uh, government institutions. He himself has no experience in medicine. He's not a scientist and he's the head of, the department that is the head of the CDC, which is HHS. Mm -hmm. and, and Alex Azar was a previous pharmaceutical lobbyist, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And so now he's, uh, he was supposed to be, Trump's had like six point people of the coronavirus, but there was like a week, I think, where he was the point person. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so how do we move forward in this country, in the health sector, with all of these people in power that are constantly... Uh, kind of throwing off the narrative and throwing off the data and just preventing any change from happening. 
Good question. Good question. <laughs> I mean... Does it come down to voting, or is it is even that kind of trivial? That's part of it. I mean, I, I always think that direct action is more important than, than voting. I think voting is important, but I think it's, uh, it's secondary to some more important things that we mm-hmm. should be doing and could be doing. And that applies to everything. But in terms of this, I think, you know, yes, legislation would help because, you know, if legally they're bound, at least creates a little bit more change. But that's really slow. And most of the senators are in both left and right are on the, the payroll of a lot of these agricultural industries. And so it's it's pretty nuanced. It's pretty difficult. Uh, but I think they're definitely is a lot more change and acceptance, especially of antibiotics. But, you know, reforming agriculture in general or corporations in general, that uh, is a bit far, far off still, I think. So I think you, if like the culture isn't going to change, which I don't think it will, we still are a very corporate run society. Mm-hmm. The state actually has very little power in America. Corporate state owns everything pretty much. Most you know, all the significant private property isn't owned by the government either, you know, so mm-hmm. everything that's pretty significant, all real places of power, all the richest people, they're all in the private sector, and they're accountable to no one but themselves. At least in, in a federal government, you can at least, even if it's a, a lie, even if it's a joke half the time, even if it fails, the people at least get to voice their opinion. Mm-hmm. And it does... It is slow, but change does happen. You know, women weren't allowed to have credit cards until 1972. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people weren't allowed to vote, and so there is change that happens. It's just really slow, but it is infinitely more change than would happen at a McDonald's or a Starbucks. Mm-hmm. That the only change is if the beneficent leader happens to change his mind, and he has no obligation to if he's making profits, he has no reason to change his mind. So until you give some sort of incentivization to corporations to change, either people rioting, destroying their stuff, or legislation in the government, or some sort of internal change where the CEO dies and his sister gets in power and she's really nice and, you know, (laughs) something like that. But I don't, that's, that's how ridiculous it is. So it's something people don't really understand about how policy is made in this country. Like like the general public. That it works, I think. That, That it can work. I mean, I think we can be so discouraged that, like I didn't vote until I was, you know, 26. Mm-hmm. I didn't vote. I was against voting. I'm still not a fan of it, but I vote. But because I, you know, I'm I'm more of a syndicalist. I believe you should do things from from the ground up, not from top down. And so, you know, electing someone else to do stuff for you has always been kind of trivial to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, it still does have an effect. It still does work. It's just really slow and inefficient. And I think direct democracy is a lot more efficient. And I'm a lot more in favor of that, of like, don't wait for some vote to pass, democratize your workplace, you know, mm-hmm. unionize your workplace, stuff like that. I think is a lot more useful and, and has a more of a direct impact the people in your own community. You can radicalize and, and get people really involved in their own lives when, you know, people complain about their life a lot, but they don't see, they feel powerless because mm-hmm. it's like, how do I have any power next to Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or, yeah. you know, 
what can I do? But I think, you know, you can do enormous stuff, but not really by yourself. And mm -hmm. so I think the biggest thing about policy is you need friends, you need people, you need to make some compromises, but to know what compromises you're willing to make and which ones are mm -hmm. you don't want to do. All right. Um, so I understand that uh, you're a member of the American Microbiology Society, and you'll be speaking with Congress in September, along with was it forty other scientists? Yeah. Uh, what are you hoping? What's the best case scenario that Congress takes from that? Well, depending on, I'm not going to be speaking with all members of Congress will probably be, I don't know yet, I could mm -hmm. be, but I'm assuming that they're going to be targeting for the Washington legislation and all of the senators and Congress people we have for Washington State, because I'm from Washington. Mm -hmm. And so I'm assuming that's how they're going to do it. That's kind of what Pew did when I did it for Pew. I mean, I met with the FDA and stuff. Like, we went around and met with all the Congress members from our state. Mm -hmm. And then we did meet the general ones as well, but so, I mean, my biggest hope and takeaway, because we're going to be talking about antibiotics a little bit, but it's also, it's more so just about biodefense, COVID-19, uh, pandemics in general, pandemic response, stuff like that. So, I mean, previously, when I was with Pew, we weren't even able to meet with any Republican members. They didn't, they didn't even want to, even though it was a nonpartisan group, research group. So hopefully, I mean, my hope is actually that we get to speak with more Republican members of Congress in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And so that way we can, you know, these, if the members of the House or the members of the Senate are willing to speak with us, that would be great because, you know, mm -hmm especially the ones that disagree with us. And a lot of Democrats do too. A lot of Democrats. Well, there's theaters. only one red congresswoman in the state, right? Uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers? Yeah. From uh, the 44th? I'm not sure. You, you, you know that I know. I, I know that uh, I'll be talking with Maria Cantwell and Patty Murray. Oh, shoot. I remember that. Yeah, they're still... <laughs> I can't believe they're still in office. Wow. Well, that's the thing. They shouldn't be. Obviously, <laughs> ought to be rotated. That would keep it more fair and less mm -hmm. corrupt as well as if you, you know, not at all convinced that government should be a, a full-time job. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I think that the rules should be, you know, for corporations and such. But, uh, do you, are you more, more hopeful about Congress than you were, say, about um, people like Michael Taylor or, or even the UN? Because as, as good intention as the UN is, uh, they're so bureaucratic, they can't seem to get too much done. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's a fair, that's a fair critique. I, I still think it's, it's our best hope. I mean, because unlike all of these other institutions, there isn't much corporate influence at all. Mm -hmm. So all the people I've met personally at the World Health Organization and the UN are serious academic scholars, mm -hmm. you know, whereas I've met people at the CDC, some of them were academic epidemiologists, some of them were infectious disease doctors, some of them were lobbyists. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So the director of the CDC right now, Robert Redfield, he did a 
bogus vaccine trial, wasting $20 million in taxpayer money in the army for HIV, and kicked out a bunch of people that were confirmed to have HIV and gave them no health insurance and then made it public. And he's a nasty man. So the director of the CDC is uh, far, and he, he wrote, I think, the forward to like a far right nationalist mm -hmm. book too. He himself is, is pretty corrupt. Same with Alex Azar, super mm -hmm. corrupt. So, you know, those are the two heads of our health industry. That's really un unfortunate. And so I, I don't ha have too much hope, but I, I do have more hope than I did, mm -hmm. let's say, five years ago. Yeah, when I met with the FDA, I definitely have more hope now because of younger people getting in Congress, more so just because of people like... AOC or... Uh... Yeah, yeah, I like I like her and Elhan Omar and stuff. I, I do like them, and, and I, but I think that just young fresh blood in general like i want nancy pelosi out i want chuck schumer out like these yeah. people are ruining our country they have been for really? years and and the more we keep them in there the worse our country will be they're less democratic they're just like you know maria cantwell and patty murray here in washington they've been in there forever and they're like well yeah but the more i'm in power the more i can get stuff done and it's like that's not how things work mm -hmm. i you're right maybe it will be more efficient you know east german police were very efficient too because they never changed heads of intelligence, but that doesn't make it okay. <laughs> Do you think the current COVID-19 uh, climate will make people more apt to listen to, say, the overuse of antibiotics and, and, and infectious diseases and kind of take it more seriously? I hope so. I, I think so, too, because, I mean, I, it, recently there was, like, a paper book I, I recently read, like, maybe last year called The Invisible Pandemic. You know, mm -hmm. and so I think it will have a lot more weight as we're talking about this invisible pandemic of resistance, because, you know, it's hard because when we because it's so structural, it's a systemic issue, mm -hmm. just like Black Lives Matter or protest or racism. It's hard sometimes to describe systemic issues to people or even talking about evolution to, to creationists. You know, they don't seem to understand how systemic structures work sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think that uh, I do have more hope that they will understand it more because pandemics seem more real to everybody now. They're scarier. Mm -hmm. They just have a, if, and these are much worse than, you know, coronavirus is, is pretty puny compared to what it, what it could have been. And so mm -hmm. it's like, this is the best case example of a more, you know, like there's an anime called Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind, that is an old <laughs> Miyazaki film and it's all about a post-antibiotic era. I remember watching that. Yeah, it's made in the 80s, and you I live know. in a world where you can't breathe, you know? <laughs> you got to wear air respirators everywhere, and you got to, and they live in the Valley of the Wind, where it's the only place that has There's kind of famous there. voice actors in that, isn't there? I think so. I don't know. Anything, yeah. I, don't, I don't know who. Probably Liam. Uh, I want to move on to COVID-19, but before I do that, I want to address uh, your undergraduate studies mm -hmm. with the Crows. Sure. Uh, you did, what was it? Multi-locus sequence typing. So that's investigating, uh, it, that's basically categorizing in a library the different sequences and genes that bacteria have. And I was uh, researching one specific bacteria called Campylobacter jejuni, um, and, or Campy for short. Mm -hmm. Campy's a little bit unique. When I learned about it in school, you have to grow it 
unlike everything else, instead of like most bacteria, when we grow it, we grow it on something called an auger growth plate. Mm-hmm. And so these growth plates, they look like jello shots in the fridge, kind of, and you <laughs> just like spread mm-hmm. bacteria on them and they grow. Well, this one, it only grows in like really hot, like 102 or 42 degrees Celsius. And so like it won't grow in the same setting as all the other bacteria. So you have to use something called charcoal auger. So it's like you got these black jello shots. <laughs> and then you have to just grow it really carefully in like a candle jar. And so, yeah, I was researching this because they were worried that on the campus there was too many crows because it's kind of really unique. It was in a bunch of newspapers that the campus had 20,000 crows that would roost there at night. And a lot of the faculty on campus were saying like, oh, we should just exterminate them, get rid of all of them. Mm-hmm. The, my animal behavior professor was like, no, I'm studying them. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm doing speech behavior right now, so just yeah. hold off. <laughs> and so my research from my professor was to go in, collect fecal samples, and they're so smart. You gotta be real. Crows are extremely intelligent. Yeah, they're actually more intelligent than uh, Besides humans, non-human primates, they're more intelligent. So, so ravens and crows, same thing, they're cousins, and parrots are the three, other than humans, the three smartest animals in the world. So they can... You uh, mean dolphins didn't make that least? No. Elephants didn't make it? No, nope, they're smarter than them. That's amazing. So, so it depends on if how you're classifying intelligence, True. of course. So yes, elephants have more neurons. They have technically more neurons than we do. But, uh, and they also have huge brains, and dolphins also can do enormously, oh, well, mammals in general can just, we're all pretty similar in a lot of our aspects. And so that's why it's so strange that uh, avians that are non-mammals have, just like octopus, they've almost a sense of convergent evolution where they have evolved, but separate from our ancestry, intelligence. And, uh, you know, crows, and this is, I think, all the way back to Euclid or um, some different like old Greek stories of uh, ravens doing incredible stuff of lifting. Mm-hmm. And this is a true story that we've tested in it. And they can do this where they want to drink some water and they can't access it. So they fill up a puddle with rocks until the water level gets high enough for them to drink. And they can do really clever stuff of pulling out objects. Mm-hmm. If they have no way to get in there. They can figure it out. They can do puzzles. One recent puzzle they did, the Financial Times documented this last year, they were trying to get some food at the end of like a cage and they were given like two sticks. And if you just use one, you couldn't reach it. And they Mm -hmm. were able to like Legos connect the two sticks together and then they were able to get it. So they just do crazy stuff like that. That's amazing. Yeah. Just that really proves that brain size is nothing. Yeah. Nothing. That's amazing. Uh, Yeah. So, so, yeah, they're incredibly smart, and so we'd have to be really clever when we'd collect the poop, which would be to, like, leave a piece of paper where they kind of all are, but you can't have them, they can't see you place it there, or they will avoid it, they won't be <laughs> So if you can get a piece of paper somewhere, and then go far enough away that they don't really see you watching it, or you don't watch it at all, and then come back, like, you know, an hour or two later, get some fresh droppings. And I mean, there were times where we didn't do that and we just, they had a fresh, like, you know, they poop everywhere and it's clearly fresh, so you just mm-hmm. scoop it. We'd also try to go for ones that had diarrhea. So you'd have to, my my professor, she's from Calcutta and she was like, 
you want to see the ones that are really runny and liquidy and try and find a little and I was like, I've never thought about this before, finding like bird poop that has, you know, diarrhea. Yeah. Interesting. So what were your findings on that? Did you find any resistance? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely found resistance. And we were also testing to see if they have some this type of toxin, cytotoxin, but the birds were neutralizing it in their gut somehow. So it was non-toxic. So they weren't really a threat to the students. And so like I'm sure that the faculty didn't like this because they still had to clean up poop all the time because mm-hmm. they're like, actually, they're not dangerous. <laughs> but they did have uh, they did have antibiotic resistance, and so I mean, I guess that that's dangerous. But we didn't we haven't published it yet, and so you know, faculty doesn't know. But <laughs> but we uh, but that it wasn't all the time, and it wasn't all uh, cases. But I would do a test where I'd get these like jello shots, and then I'd set up like. 11 different little paper discs mm-hmm. and those paper discs I would soak in a liquid antibiotic and I'd pick 11 different antibiotics to soak it in and then whichever ones had like a halo like invisible field protection around it where the bacteria didn't grow okay that one works but if the bacteria grow all the way up to that paper disc it's like okay that one's resistant that one's resistant that one's and so I just get a logbook and you know R mm-hmm. S if it seems susceptible you know stuff like that so you've been in a number of different documentaries with PBS, Al Jazeera, CBS, the Australian Broadcasting Company. Uh, was there anything that really surprised you about the production of these documentaries? Like, did you realize any ulterior motives, them taking your content and kind of twisting it even subtly to fit their own narrative? Yeah, more so with CBS, for sure. <laughs> 60 Minutes, for sure. They cut out probably 90% of everything I've talked about. All the stuff about nuclear weapons and climate change, whatever. <laughs> uh, they, but even the questions, a lot of reporters would try to make it more specific about the hospital infection. Didn't really ask or care about India or the foreign policy of antibiotics or how antibiotics work on an international scale. They almost wanted to localize it to so this was a hospital-acquired infection. Mm. And so that was definitely, for CBS, the more the aim that they had, I would say. Uh, and, but, you know, there's a diversity of people working on it. But with CBS, though, it was it was all women. All mm-hmm. of the producers were women. The journalist was uh, a woman as well. She herself was from Australia. And she was a good reporter, but CBS in general was not... Uh, very good at journalism uh with pbs like they did their homework so they didn't mm-hmm. like cbs had to keep on having me send them stuff i'm like this is probably the second time i've sent you this and it's like you could google this and find it yourself this is embarrassing but i didn't say that but... well because they are a larger station and you know yeah they have money they definitely have the money because they flew me out to boston and some mm-hmm. other people and all this stuff so they definitely have uh, the resources to, and it would take five minutes the time it took you to write that text to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to ask me. You could have just found this out because not only have I told you before. So I, I just found uh, 60 Minutes, kind of lazy journalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think even maybe they got a couple stuff wrong, even. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> right. I got a locator on my keys. So. <laughs> I can find where my phone or my keys are. <laughs> All right. Uh, last question before we move on. Um, 
What can we, the general public, do to fight the overuse of antibiotics? That's a, that's a hard question. I mean, ultimately, I do think it's a these bigger institutions that are more responsible. So there isn't a whole lot we can do. There is, I mean, it depends on how active you want to be. There is definitely stuff you can do. Use soaps, like bar soap instead of antibacterial soap that's not necessary, that's not protecting you from anything. It'll it'll probably make things worse. General soap from 100, 200 years ago works just great. Mm -hmm. Just great. And that's even better than hand sanitizer for sure because hand sanitizer, well, first of all, only works if you let it sit on your hands and don't even move for 20 seconds. So if you squirt it, rub your hands, and wait 10 seconds, it probably didn't work very well. Seriously? Yeah, so you got to wait a while. And in fact, to get the 99.99% kill rate that they have on the bottles, they usually let it sit for six minutes. Same with bleach. They let it just sit for a while. So in a way, hand sanitizer has been used uselessly by a majority of the population. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, if anything, it probably just causes more resistance half the time. I mean, it, it, it's effective if you use it. It works great. But it doesn't work too great because, like, if you dip your hands in mud and then you kind of dry them off, your hands are still really dark and brown and muddy and stuff. And if you use hand sanitizer, you could wipe over all your hands, but clearly your hands are still dirty. It's kind mm -hmm. of the question of, like, if my hands are dirty and I use hand sanitizer, does it work? And I'm like, no. Because it only is just doing the surface a little bit mm -hmm. and you still have all of those clear dirt microbes and so that's why hand soap really is the best because you're using the physical scrubbing mm -hmm. to to detach it and the soap is you know easy technology it doesn't have to like strip and burn your skin instead it's just using lipids to just kind of make the bacteria detach from your skin and then the water rinses it off and goes down the drain so soap's a lot better so making sure you don't have a bacterial soap which is easy sometimes like in fact sadly cheaper soaps tend to have antibiotics more and so if you look on the back a typical one is uh trisimalone as a common antibiotic in hand soaps it's sometimes in dishwashing detergents or your clothing detergent all sorts of stuff that like is unnecessary it's just going to be causing your immune system to be weaker and, you know, that's why it's good to have natural immunity to encourage kids to go outside and play mm -hmm. in the dirt because it exposes them to microbes early and then their immune system grows and develops really strong. Whereas if you are really cautious and, and wash everything all the time, you can become a bit uh, sheltered and bubbled and get infections easier that way. And so you want exposure. You want, uh, I mean, you don't want to go, you know, have a sick person cough on you or some type of exposure, but natural immunity exposure to food, even having, you know, dirt on your food from your garden is good. I mean, that mm -hmm. sort of stuff is really good for your body. And uh, the more you sanitize stuff, the more unhealthy you are, as mm -hmm. studies show. So I think, yeah, one, one big aspect is better soaps. Other one is, of course, how you eat. You know, if you're mm -hmm. eating food that have antibiotics, that, of course, isn't going to be good. Um, so for me, that was the first reason before I got crossed up by mm -hmm. my own image was because I was just like, it was a hard task for me to find, you know, meat that wasn't soaked in antibiotics. So, so what does that mean for, for people when they're buying groceries? Does that mean we have to buy organic or, or what? Sometimes. I mean, you don't necessarily always have to. A lot of times now, because it is more accessible and popular, you can find non-organic meat that says raised without antibiotics. 
especially with eggs too. You can get non-organic eggs that are raised by antibiotics. Uh, or if it's even, even if it's not organic, if it's free range beef, grass fed beef, smaller. So yeah, it'll be more expensive probably, but you can, but it's definitely there. And the options are now a lot more available at your local grocery stores. Mm -hmm. But uh, sometimes it's more expensive, not always. So it's kind of a, up to the person of how much of an effort they want to make. Because, you know, ultimately, it's not fair for us to have to make all these changes when really it's these bigger companies that should just mm -hmm. like, why don't you, it's, it's like a plastic problem. You know, it's like if you can make biodegradable plastics already, like Taco Time does, they make mm -hmm. incredible straws and lids. Well, why can't McDonald's do that when it has twice 10 times the profits of Taco Time, mm -hmm. which is a local business, and they can do biodegradable plastic. Why well, couldn't uh, all of these other companies? Then the consumer doesn't have to feel guilty about using a plastic bag or a straw because it it'll the technology yeah. is caught up with the consumer. Usually, the consumers end up getting blamed. Yep, exactly. uh, you need to drive a hybrid. You, yep. you got to stop using plastic bags. You got to start using reusable things. Yeah, and, and I don't think it's really fair, and it's naturally going to cause people to be upset mm -hmm. and then reject wanting to change it all and go harder on the other stuff and yeah it, it can have a total backwards effect so i but nonetheless those are the if we're talking on a personal level what we can do you know but even if you're a vegetarian or vegan like you're not immune because a lot of times spinach and stuff is used with fertilization from these same farms mm -hmm. there's runoff from these farms there was a study in germany that right outside of it wasn't even a super factory farm, but it was like a farm uh, facility, a butcher shop. And outside of it, there was like a school bus stop across the street and they sampled it. And it was like full of resistant bacteria all over that area. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, you can be exposed to this, even if you're eating vegetarian, that sort of food is also. Contamination uh, is yep. very common. I mean, Monsanto sues people over it all the time with uh, the germinating of, of their wheat and other people's wheat, which yeah, is their copyright. Frankly, <laughs> insane. But Ugh, so moving on to COVID. In your opinion, how much of a threat is COVID really? Well, threat to what? To humanity. To humanity, not that. Not not our biggest threat at all. I wouldn't even say it top five. But it's uh, it's definitely dangerous. It's more dangerous than the flu. It's more contagious than the flu. But uh, you know, it's not measles. It's not mm -hmm. Ebola. And the biggest effect is what it's the division. I think it's causing between people to know like how much science do we trust? Who do we trust? It's kind of exposing all of these already really weak trusts that people have mm -hmm. in our health structure, in our government, everything. In America specifically, too. Yeah, yeah, exclusively, almost. Uh, yeah, so I mean, and for the, there are places like New Zealand and, and others that have like, pretty much, they're done with it. There's no COVID in the mm -hmm. country, you know. But the second you open up your border, <laughs> yeah. you know, America and Brazil and, and England, all have far-right dictators, by the way. Well, 
Trump's not a dictator, and I guess neither is Boris Johnson. Bolsonaro is in Brazil, but yeah. But the others are all their sycophants. They love authoritarianism in general, so they're they're sympathetic to that sort of far right nationalism. And you know, those are also the highest cases <laughs> are these countries that. Uh, but you know, I I think it can be dangerous because like Democrats attacking Trump, saying like you need to be more strict. It's like, do you really want, like, this, like, him being more strict is what's happening in Portland Seattle with mm-hmm. federal agents coming in from the Border Patrol. Yeah. And, and so it's like, so many times the Democrats are attacking Trump from the right on military, saying, like, well, you should be bombing Russia, you should be bombing mm-hmm. this, like, you know, you're talking with North Korea to de-escalate the... It's kind of like they're, they're becoming so... Their hate for Trump is kind of blinding their their vision for the overall goal. Yeah, I think so. And so, I mean, don't get me wrong, I I hate Trump, but uh, he's incompetent. But at the same time, there are are bigger fish to fry and constantly playing what he said or didn't say on CNN all the time, you know, when you could be covering real world news, Mm -hmm. would be a lot more efficient. Not saying that you shouldn't hold him accountable and Mm -hmm. mention lies that he's telling but you know mention it correct it move on they only really agree with him on war yeah and that's when they're silent yeah um do you think our state's response to covid was proportional or not proportional enough Um, i think i think right now we're just kind of trying to play catch up because we didn't do it i think it wasn't good enough at the beginning we didn't have enough contract tracers and we didn't have enough testing at the very beginning so at the very beginning we had contact tracers but not enough so they would go in and say like you know where have you been in the last two weeks so we can like test some people and if we were just really good about contact tracing we wouldn't have to worry so much about shutting stuff down knowing where people went because we could have tracked the pandemic really easily Mm -hmm. we could have seen where everyone was we were really lazy about that we didn't do much contact tracing like china did that's why china shut it down so fast they also used some horrible authoritarian measures to do that but their contact tracing was still very good and their ability to go and see not i mean now it's different because they're using phones to track if you've even been to a sensitive my friend in wuhan told me like <laughs> if you even go to a hot area it will, your phone will say that you've been in a hot area and it will no longer be green, it'll be red, and you'll have to get retested. Oh, man. And so you can only go into grocery stores and do stuff if you have a green check. And so there's that sort of authoritarianism that's really scary. But they also, instead of Xi Jinping, the president of China, allowing himself to dictate what would do, he let the scientists and epidemiologists tell him what to do. Mm-hmm. And some of that was a bit draconian and shutting people in there. Oh, but was it was boring. effective. Yeah, no, it's definitely effective. But we could do something that's also effective, but not quite as repressive and not, mm-hmm. you know, throw people in jail or something. Or, But if you had really significant testing so that you could just test people really quick to confirm they have it and then do really good contact tracing to see all the people they came in contact with, then you just know. And then mm-hmm. it's like, all right, here's a case of 20 people have it. Now we let them all know they have it they'll hopefully isolate for two weeks and then that will at least slow the spread and it mm-hmm. should be under contained. I mean, that's what we did with SARS the first time and it mm-hmm. worked. And so that's what we've done with all the other pandemics and it worked. 
It's what we did with MERS in 2012. I feel like the biggest problem with, uh, with America and this virus specifically is uh, the contraction rate, A, and B, the culture in America of not wanting to listen to authority when it's something as small as this. I mean, I, I remember I talked to someone and they weren't wearing a mask. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I pretended to be on their side, you know. And she she admitted to me, she was like, you know, honestly, I just don't like being told what to do. Yeah. Uh, so some people are saying that zinc and hydroxychloroquine is a cure for this. Is that true? And if so, why isn't it being used widely? Not a cure. Um, zinc in general does help uh, with immune responses and cutting down inflammatory a bit. Hydroxychloroquine was the drug that Trump was pushing for a while, but hydroxychloroquine uh, was recanted. Two studies from very prestigious journals, one out of the Lancet, you know, was these two very good academic studies were both recalled because of faulty data. And that was, those were the studies that Trump, when he was praising hydroxychloroquine, also the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro also praising hydroxychloroquine, himself having COVID right now and showing everyone, although, well, I should say he tested three times positive and just tested negative and then took off his mask to tell reporters this. Um, but this is someone that's had COVID for the past month and every day he would film himself taking hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> hydroxychloroquine, Jair Bolsonaro and Trump are both invested into its drug development. So that has a big part to play of why. Trump also just likes to jump on board of anything that might be working mm -hmm. and hope that he's right. So if he can get ahead of it and like make a prediction that seems like, oh, he knows what's going on. He's buying scratch tickets. Yeah, but unfortunately he keeps on buying the wrong ones for himself. <laughs> so, so he just keeps on being wrong. And, you know, the data that these, these two studies that had to recall their papers, they used data online, online data, and that data was bad. And so they, but they didn't verify where this data came from, the age ranges, any of this. And so these two very prestigious journals put this online data that they found on an online database and they put it into their study. It's like they cited someone else's work, you know, without verifying it. And that's why they had to recall the study was because they put bad results. And in, in fact, hydroxychloroquine has been shown to increase heart rate, to cause some hypertension in some people and it can cause heart attacks. And mm -hmm. so it's, they were saying like, not only, yes, there was some cases where this was effective, but the whole study was tainted because we used bad data. So, mm -hmm. so you'd have to do some more studies. Well, I know hydroxychloroquine is, is already used with people that have suppressed immune systems or, or diseases that, that cause their immune system to be suppressed. Yeah, like malaria, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's also used, and the FDA has it approved for that usage for like malaria. But, well, quinine used to be used for malaria, and those two are related, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they, you know, using it, treating a drug for a new disease that we don't understand very well at all, because it's, it's just a new evolution, is really difficult because we don't know the long-term effects. Same with vaccines. We just don't know any of the long-term effects of what's going to happen. So we just kind of are, are shooting in the dark, <laughs> hoping, and that's... You know, he was trying to jump on that. Remdesivir is our is the best one, but that's only after you've gotten it, mm -hmm. uh, and it just cuts infection rate time a bit. But but that's about it.
So some scientists have been saying that the coronavirus is not naturally occurring. What does that actually mean, and what are the implications of that? Well, they're wrong. It is naturally occurring because we can see that it has something called an ACE2 binder. So it, this ACE binding mechanism protein is not well adapted for humans. And if you were going to genetically make something like this in the lab, you, you would be starting, if you started on another species or another animal besides humans, it would almost be impossible to know if it would ever bind. Mm -hmm. So hypothetically, if someone said, well, okay, these scientists in Wuhan didn't want to be caught right-handed, so they manipulated the virus slightly so it kind of looked natural. But the thing is, we could tell if they did that because we could see the genetic markers in its DNA to see if this virus has been tampered with, when it was tampered with, how long ago, whether it was last year or 10,000 years ago, mm -hmm. like we can see it. Because when we pull up the genetic code, we can see, okay, what's been mutated, what's been changed, what's naturally occurring, what still has a phylogeny that we can trace back. And this coronavirus is one of seven that are really common all over. They've been with us for millions of years. Mm -hmm. This seventh evolution comes from bats, for sure. 96% identity to uh, a bat that we traced in Wuhan. And, but that's not a complete match because the SARS one was a 99% mm -hmm. match. And so we know it originated in bats, but there's probably an intermediate animal. And the binding seems, the binding mechanism, this ACE2, is most closely related to the pangolin, but, mm -hmm. but the rest of it is not. So only the binding mechanism. So that's what our biggest clue that it naturally evolved is that there's two different animals that it shows really close phylogeny to, the mm -hmm. pangolin and, and this uh, bat. Uh, so why do you think uh, these other scientists, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have their names oh, yeah, yeah. at the top of my head, why do you think that uh, they would say that it wasn't naturally occurring? Well, What are they missing, or what are they seeing that isn't quite there? Well, I think a history of zoonosis in the history of how animal contagions spill over to humans, you know, pretty commonly. Zika, malaria, Ebola, mm -hmm. all of them. They HIV. all the, yeah, they <laughs> all come from animals first. And and especially when we can sample random populations of bats and find ninety-eight percent, ninety-six percent, ninety-one percent identities, mm -hmm. they all have coronaviruses of some degree. They just to find the right variation of this one is kind of uncommon, but you know, this would be the most pathetic thing you'd engineer. It's yeah. like, it's not even, it's so bad, you might as well not have done it. It's like, if, and it's like, well, maybe it was an accident. Maybe it escaped from mm, they were the Wuhan lab. That's the, yeah. that's the conspiracy. That well, and I, and I read one report from the National Review, which is a right-wing news place. And they, mm -hmm. they talked about how like, oh no, this came out of Wuhan lab. And at first, like halfway through the article, it all was pretty plausible. They had kind of done their research and then they stopped referencing papers and it's all just kind of accusatory mm -hmm. and it was hard to follow. And I'm like, well, that's not true. Nope. It kind of turned nationalist. Towards yeah. Yeah. It definitely turned nationalist and more of like a spy. And, and what they quoted this nature article, nature is 
the most prestigious biology journal or science journal. And they miss in nature in their podcast and did a republishing to correct for this so mm -hmm. that people wouldn't misunderstand them. But he read something about the Wuhan lab that was first making their BSL-3. That's their level three biosafety lab. And so if it's level three, you can work on things like Ebola, SARS, COVID, stuff like that, really dangerous stuff. But you just have to have the right air ventilation system. The whole building has to be manufactured. And mm -hmm. so when they were opening it up, it was they're like, we're really excited that we're going to be able to work on SARS and different coronaviruses. And so they said this in 2014. And so that's why they're reading this report like, ah, you know, you mm -hmm. got it. Yeah. But, you know, there are BSL-3 labs in every country. You mm -hmm. know? And BSL-4 is the really dangerous lab. There's only a few of those. And, you know, that's where we work on, like, smallpox, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's only two places in the world that have smallpox. One's in Siberia. The other's at the CDC in, mm -hmm. in Atlanta. So if China was working on something like that, like, we'd probably know about it. And if we didn't, then it would be impossible to trace. And they're not going to be stupid enough to leave genetic markers if they're going to release it. If it was accidentally released before they were able to work on it, why would you work on a coronavirus when you could pick any, I mean, Botox, you know, bacillus mm -hmm. are way more like you could do anthrax, you could do so many things. So to pick a coronavirus, which two of which are, are common colds, to pick a coronavirus that mimics the common cold and the flu is like, and then it first infects your whole country. Mm -hmm. And it makes you look really bad. Like Xi Jinping re went into Wuhan. They silenced it. They, like, you can see this one doctor on, three different doctors actually posted on forums, like, hey, I'm treating someone for a SARS-type virus. It's really dangerous. I, they're getting dangerous pneumonia. It's killing him. He was telling, like, his medical school colleagues. The police, not the Chinese state government, but the local Wuhan state police or Wuhan city police came to him and said, you know, you need to take this down and come down to the police station with us and promise you're not going to be spreading propaganda, stuff like this. And he's like, I, I'm not. There's just like a virus. And then this doctor ends up getting COVID and dies from it. Mm -hmm. And so he became really popular throughout China. And Xi Jinping then took it much more serious. And that's when they started taking it a lot more aggressively. But so I think just the whole responses would have been different. And the lead technician out of China that her lab that they're saying it escaped from, she's a serious, like, scientist. She's mm -hmm. published great work in Western journals, you know. She has no love for communist China, or at least the party. And so to suspect her of, like, being manipulated and lying when all of the scientific facts check out is So just, there's no chance that this could have been an accident on China's part? No. No, I, I, there's even more evidence to suggest it might not have even come from China. I mean, we have reports in Europe and America, the genetic bioinformatics research shows that we had it all the way back in December oh, of 2019. Man. So in our first case in Everett was documented in January, and that was the first one in the U.S., uh, but then it showed that it had been spreading in the community for six weeks prior to his infection. So, and in the very first case that they think it might have come from is a dude in, in Wu, not even in Wuhan, but in near Wuhan, in Hubei province, where mm -hmm. Wuhan is within. And that was in November 2019. 
So it, it's just like, well, this is exactly what we would expect if it was natural. And considering that there are millions of unidentified natural viruses in the environment, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's like uh, thinking you can count the stars. Mm -hmm. It's like you, you're not going to be able to. And so to be able to think like, well, maybe this was, it's like China does not have to manufacture this. China is scared to death of this. Mm -hmm. Everyone in the world is scared to death of pandemics. That's why no one's messing with it. No one's doing bioengineering on viruses anymore. We haven't been since the Cold War because it's just so dangerous that that the Soviet it can't Union be controlled so easily. Exactly. And so the Soviet Union and America were both like their CDC and our CDC and Chinese CDC actually work pretty closely together. Mm -hmm. And that's why sometimes as inefficient as the UN and the World Health Organization can be, it's still nice because it gives us access to mm -hmm. countries that we might not be at odds or we might be at odds with, but our scientists are not. Yeah. And to have scientific unity, it's important if we don't have anything else. Mm -hmm. Solidarity through natural disaster. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a common belief among uh, the common folk <laughs> is uh, that herd immunity uh, is what's going to end this thing. Is that argument valid, or is it just an oversimplification of the virus? Well, yes, I think. I mean, I think it should work. It, it does work, but unfortunately, it might not with this. We don't have enough data yet. So herd immunity in general, that is the better. And I was actually saying this up until last month, until mm -hmm. I read some recent reports that, that changed my mind a bit. But, you know, herd immunity in theory, should be the way out of this. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how we've stopped every other pandemic that has started to hurt us. And once you start vaccinating for something, like with polio, you can eliminate it because you can start creating false herd immunity with vaccines. So that way you don't have to wait for people to get infected because they might die. You just give their immune system an identity marker of what this virus a dead virus of it looks like so then your immune system's like okay now that i know what that spike protein looks like i can make antibodies to look exactly for that and if i ever see anything like that i'll attack it mm -hmm. and so you can the hope is to create herd immunity and so that's why we're waiting for a vaccine because if you get a vaccine by default you now have herd immunity because you can mm -hmm. just vaccinate everyone but i've heard vaccines aren't a hundred percent is that also true yeah yeah even good vaccines sometimes are 60%. The rate of one of the COVID ones, even though they're still in trial, is 50%. Mm -hmm. which, which isn't great. No, but it's still, you know, it's still better than nothing for some places like New mm -hmm. York and Italy, where the doctors there said, we've never seen anything like this in our lives. He's like, I'm now I struggle with chronic depression because I deal with hundreds of dead people every single day, nonstop every day for months now. And that's emotionally just exhausting for me. Is and it the, the rate of uh, recreation of this virus that's pushing it to kind of evolve quicker than usual that's kind of causing uh, kind of the worry that herd immunity might not kick in? Well, hopefully not, because at least so far the mutations seem to be non-structural. Or I will, they are structural because everything on its body is, but they're non-essential. like you know, it's like changing the color of the traffic light, but they're not changing what the bridge is made out of. Mm -hmm. So they're changing minute stuff when they're, they are evolving, but hopefully the stuff we're targeting the vaccines 
are targeting really fundamental infrastructure that shouldn't evolve because mm-hmm. it's pretty consistent. And, you know, just like a flu vaccine, we have a universal flu vaccine that the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has, and the uh, Welcome Trust, and a bunch of people have already invested into and, and created, but it hasn't passed FDA trials yet. Mm-hmm. So we have a universal flu vaccine because it similarly is targeting a infrastructure on the virus that won't change. No matter how many years it evolves, it's something that it has held in its body for a long time. So it shouldn't change. So if you're developing a very good vaccine, it should be targeting things that won't be, even if it has a lot of Mm -hmm. mutations, it shouldn't mutate some of its core functions. But you're right that if there there does seem to be some weird thing that's happening because there's a study out of Spain, the biggest yet, like last month of like 40,000 people. And it showed that like only 5% of them developed any, like antibodies for it. So, so that's like, that's, that's not good. Or at least long-term lasting ones. Mm-hmm. You know, they, of course you'll develop some, but they might die off in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And so this could end up being something where, if even if you get a dozen vaccines to work, they could all fail within a couple months, and and we don't know the longevity yet. This could be something where we have to get a booster vaccine, like <laughs> where you gotta. And some people are like, is this even bad enough? Do I need to get a vaccine for something? But it does because this virus is so unpredictable. Mm-hmm. It and we like uh, one guy in the UK. He's like he was in his twenties, and he said. Yeah, first I just got like, you know, I got real sick for a few days. Mm-hmm. Then I started to get better. And then I got hit with the flu. And it was the worst flu of my life for like a week. And then mm-hmm. I got pneumonia. I didn't go to the hospital, but I just getting up off the couch to go to the fridge. I'm out of breath. I, I thought I was suffocating. Mm-hmm. And it was like that for like a month. And it causes permanent lung damage. It causes a lot of permanent damage to your body. If you if you get a normal or bad mm-hmm. case of COVID, it can it can cause long term damage to the rest of your life, especially My lung damage. Dad thinks he had it. He tested negative, but back in March he had a fever for 17 days. Uh, he had a you know his lungs felt like they were just in pain. He couldn't lay down properly. He said he felt like he was hit by a truck. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah, because yeah. there's been a lot of false negatives. Oh yeah, my my mom probably has it right now. She she has been sick since Friday, you know, and uh, but if your body isn't creating enough antibodies, a lot of times they only do an antibody test and they mm-hmm. don't do a PCR test or a nucleic acid test, which is like you know it takes a lot longer, and so. If you are not doing a very specific test, then this person might not be making enough antibodies. So then it looks like they're not having an immune response. So then, oh, they don't have it, but their body might not be responding to it well, or it could just be a false negative. And that's what the Mm -hmm. false negatives are, is that it says you don't have it, but you're not testing specifically enough. Sometimes a PCR test is too specific. So once someone has already had it, they get released, they'll take a test and they come back positive. But that doesn't mean that they're contagious. It just means that there's the test was looking for any of the viruses RNA mm-hmm. in your blood. And so it says, oh, there is some virus particles in you, but mm-hmm. there's not nearly enough to be contagious. But clearly Americans don't know a whole lot about this virus. 
If there's one thing you could get all Americans to understand about this virus, which would it be? That it's really easy to catch and be asymptomatic. That's what I don't think. Even myself, I catch myself being like, I haven't been around anybody this day. <laughs> it's like, I, have you touched a keypad today? Have mm -hmm. you gotten gas today? Have you gone anywhere outside mm -hmm. of your house today? Okay, then there's, you know, 50% chance you got it somewhere. And maybe <laughs> your immune system was just really good and fought it off and you never got it. And your, and your natural immune system just made sure you never got infected. And that probably happens to us every day. And only maybe if you touch something, like I didn't use gloves when I get gas. I don't mm -hmm. do any of that. I, I did it first and then, you know, I don't anymore. Yeah. But so trying to track where you got it is just next to impossible. So you just mm -hmm. need to be humble and assume that viruses are really persistent and could be anywhere. And you don't have to be around a sick person to get mm -hmm. it. You can get it pretty easily. And, you know, face masks, I think, aren't that bad, but they're not that great. Great. Yeah. I mean, they're not the best thing in the world, but it's better than anything, especially because in, that's why it's a universal thing. Like every country is doing it because it's not whether or not it's aerosol because people are like, I can still smell my farts. Like, so, so something's getting in. <laughs> but I don't think, uh, it has to do with a vector, right? Yeah. And, and so it isn't an aerosol, even though there is a letter of like 237 scientists that recently wrote the World Health Organization saying like, we want more research that it's aerosol. It's not an aerosol. Trust mm -hmm. me. If it, if it, unless you want to redefine what aerosol means, like measles is an aerosol. The R not, that means the reproduction number, R not is in zero. So if you're infected, how many people will an average sick person get sick? So with the flu, one person, one to mm -hmm. two people. With COVID, it's twice that. It's two to four people. With measles, it's 18, 12 to 18 people. Mm -hmm. So the R not of measles is like 18. That's what an airborne disease looks like. The numbers for COVID would be in the billionth if it was airborne, <laughs> but it's not. And so, and yeah, we'd already have herd immunity. In yeah. <laughs> but so, yeah, no, it's not, uh, it's not airborne. And so it's, it's spread through your spit, mm -hmm. mostly an invisible spit that you can't see when you talk. And some is walking through the air for a little bit, but you know, mostly it's, so they, it, the, masks are to stop the spit coming out mm -hmm. of your mouth. And if you're asymptomatic for 14 days, and some people are asymptomatic throughout the whole course of the disease, mm -hmm. having no symptoms and but being super contagious. Mm -hmm. And so I and you know there was one study like 25% of the study people were asymptomatic. So you, that is a thing that I don't think a lot of people are are considering mm -hmm. too much. Uh, how do you see this ending? Uh, what needs to happen for this pandemic to effectively end in this country? I don't think it will. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's a little too far gone. I I mean, I've read some people say that we just need to go back to square one. Mm -hmm. Basically, not do what China did, but kind of. But like, would that uh, wouldn't that just destroy us? Yeah, I think we, we, we screwed it we, up. Yeah, well, and because initially we don't have a a uh, proper system in place. Exactly, we don't have a communist system in in place where, or even a socialist one. So we don't have the coordination. Mm -hmm. So even though what China did was 
total violation of people's rights and liberties, I believe. It, in terms of scientifically, it was probably the best example in world history of a epidemiological response, for mm -hmm. sure. And every, every technical person at the World Health Organization says that. That's why, you know, Trump and Mike Pompeo, the CIA, and a lot of people are like, you're, all these scientists are just in China's pocket. And it's like, because they're mm -hmm. not listening to their department heads and they're listening to the scientists. Mm -hmm. So that's why all the other scientists in the world are like, oh, wow, China's doing a good job. Even if the other stuff they're doing is horrible, at least like they aren't killing their citizens. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, like in America, it's like, well, I'd rather be dead than have someone tell me what I can't mm -hmm. do. And and I probably agree with that. I would rather yeah. I would rather be free and get sick than than locked up. Oh uh, yeah, there's, state there's something I, to be said that. about you know handing power over to the yeah. state. It's yeah. not something they give back ever. Yeah. Uh, especially with individual liberties. <laughs> so Cuba um, is similar to China and the sense that their healthcare system was extremely effective, mm -hmm. even though they were under a communist dictatorship, right? Well, communist government, not, not mm -hmm. so much a dictatorship mm -hmm. like China is a little bit more so. But yeah, they. I'm not sure too much, though, of Cuba's response, so I don't want to speak yeah. of it too much because I don't really know much about it. But I do know that they, they do have a very good response and i know that they sent a bunch of doctors to other countries mm -hmm. they sent some doctors to china and to italy as well and so they were listening to cuban doctors that were going there because they had experienced this and they had enough resources mm -hmm. to, to help whereas america you would think would have more than enough resources to take care of this and help other countries mm -hmm. but we we didn't use the tests that the world health organization had already set up which is sometimes common that the CDC in the past has led the world in pandemic responses. It, you know, it has for the last 30 years, ever since HIV really, but not, uh, not currently. Mm -hmm. And not only because the leadership is just absolutely horrible at the CDC and the health and human services. Uh, so I think that has the biggest problem with why America's response has been really bad, but I think, uh, yeah, there isn't really much we can do at all at this point mm -hmm. because I just don't. If anything, just up the uh, the way out would be through social contact tracing, you know, mm -hmm. because we're not going to be able to get everyone to wear masks. We're not going to be able to get everyone to socially distance. We're not going to get everyone on the same page to agree with even those basic things. So you just need to re up contact tracing like to a massive degree. Mm -hmm. So it's like. Their goal is like, well, let's try and do these four different things to the health response. Well, if people aren't doing three of those, you can't do number one at the same level. You've got to intensify it. You've got to do contact tracing significantly more than maybe China even did. Because if you're not going to be locking people down, then at least you need to be really tracking mm -hmm. everywhere sick people go and making sure you're testing enough people. Even, have then, everybody. even then, there's going to be a lot of American pushback. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So transitioning it uh, from COVID to BLM, I'll, I'll ask a question that involves them both. Uh, the protests obviously have an effect on the spread of COVID, but to what degree do you think that's really affecting the spread? Do you think it's it's like an outrageous amount being spread, or, or do you think that there's enough social distancing and mask wearing that it's not going to do too much damage? I mean, I definitely have been at the protests for 
weeks and weeks and weeks now since May 29th. Mm -hmm. And I can say everyone is always wearing a mask, mostly to protect our identity from the police. <laughs> but there isn't much social distancing. We're all mm -hmm. shoulder to shoulder, big, big crowds, but we're all outside. And I am, would hope that sick people wouldn't feel like they would want to come out. Yes, I know, as I said, there yes. are a lot of asymptomatic people and you don't know when you're sick. And you can be contagious for 14 days before you even show symptoms. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not asymptomatic, you know, it can take time. But uh, if you're not feeling hot, you're not going to want to stand out in the heat and protest and get shot at with, you know, tear gas. Mm -hmm. So most people are going to stay home if they're feeling sick, unlike the grocery store. Mm -hmm. In my experience, I've already seen four different sick people coughing with red noses and eyes at the grocery store since this has happened. Four different times Jesus I've seen Christ. people. I was walking down an aisle and the lady was like sniffling, covered red, and then up like, <coughs> and I was like, and then she reached and grabbed something off the shelf. I was like, yep, different aisle. You know what book I read before uh, COVID really hit? Like a month before things really hit the fan, I finished that Stephen King book, The Stand. I haven't read what's. I haven't so read. it starts out with this super virus that kills off a oh. majority of the population. It's like a, they call it the super flu. But it was a, it was really weird. I was like, oh man, if this, if this is how it goes down, we're screwed. Like, <laughs> but uh, so there's a big misconception out there that these BLM protests are still just about George Floyd. Mm -hmm. In your words, what are they really about? Because I know everyone kind of has their own agenda out there. I mean, there's anarchists, there's Black Lives Matter people, there's libertarians out there that just don't want the police to have as much power as they do. Uh, would you say it's a combination of a whole bunch of uh, different motives, or, or do you think that there's really kind of uh, a set of criteria that a lot of the protesters fall under? Yeah, I think there's definitely a criteria. I I think the most unifying message that I've seen across the country and also personally here in Seattle has been abolishing the police and defunding police and mm -hmm. that it's the police themselves at the protests because, you know, that's what killed George Floyd and that's what's killing Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain and all of these other people uh, are the police themselves and getting the general public conservatives and white Democrats that mm -hmm. don't understand that it's a systemic issue because, you know, even the Nancy Pelosi's and the Joe Biden's, you know, they're still narcs. They're still cops themselves. And so, like, they, they love the police. They love the military. And so for them, they couldn't imagine that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that's because they've been on the other end of the privilege for so long. But for people like me, uh, as a as a libertarian socialist, as a as an anarchist, for me, libertarian socialist. That's a, that sounds like an oxymoron. It's the technical and historical definition. Libertarian has never been used for right wing or conservatism in its history until 1950 in America mm -hmm. only. So if you go to any other country in the world and say you're a libertarian, they assume you mean left of Marx. Mm -hmm. they, they assume you mean left wing. So if you're in England, if you're in Russia. You know, the, the communists hate libertarian socialists. That's, mm -hmm. They hate them more than libertarian capitalists. Libertarian capitalism doesn't really exist because it's just the state monarchy. Mm -hmm. Because if you give all power corporations, they, in like, no matter what, it's a totality, they become a monarchy. They become a 
monolithic monopoly. That's the, the the whole game of monopoly was invented by a socialist to show the crimes of capitalism. So on the political compass, you're a libertarian left. Yeah, bottom okay. bo- bottom left corner. All right. And so for me, that's that's because you have to have individual liberties. You have to have individual rights. Communities need to be run by the people that live there. Mm-hmm. You can't be accountable to random people. But you still have to have a social safety net. You still have mm-hmm. to have basic things. And this is in the nature of libertarian documents. The very first use of libertarian going back to, I want to say, 1789, again, was all in the spirit of the Enlightenment. It was all about the whole point of libertarian texts. Classic one, the most classic would be The Limits of State Action by Wilhelm von Humboldt in mm-hmm. 1792. And also you got you know John Stuart Mill on liberty. Uh, you have others. But Wilhelm von Humboldt's limits of state action is the best. And if Humboldt, you, didn't he um, do the thing about uh, language, linguistic uh, yes. anthropology? Yes, he did. And I read something by him. Yeah, he's a famous linguist as well. And it actually, they are very related. The mm-hmm. concepts that drive both of his, both of the concept of libertarian and also his language theory as well. I was re- really fascinated by his language theory. Like I think he uses the most complex words for it, but. I mean, it, it came down to be pretty simple. What a, what a society values, what they have a lot of, they have more language for. Yeah. Um, so going back to uh, police brutality and systemic racism, yeah. um, I think a common counter argument to the systemic racism problem is that old, you know, 13% of the population commits 50% of the crime, which is true. But... How do we go about fixing that? Because police are always, they're biased towards the black community because of the violent crime that occurs in them. Well, yeah. yeah. But how do we communicate and change the actual systemic racism that creates those environments, that creates those individuals that commit violent crime? Uh, well, I, I don't think, like, I don't think you can reform the police. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. There's you know, too, too many unions, too many, I mean, half the population supports them. Well, not just that, but the the institution itself, the structure itself, going back to the history of it, you know, one, in the South, police were set up as, first they were called slave patrollers, and even the sheriff badge, the little star badge, actually the original one, if you look it up, it says slave patrol. And so in the North, uh, police were invented to break strikes. Like in 1880, we had the Haymarket Affair, which a bunch of protesters were slaughtered. These protesters, just like current protesters, were fighting for their rights. They were fighting for really unreasonable things like an eight-hour workday, child mm-hmm. labor laws, so that six-year-olds wouldn't be working in coal mines, because that's the totality of capitalism, is that profit and exploitation by all means necessary. Profit is the end goal. That's it. Mm-hmm. And so if you have no laws, you get six-year-olds working in coal mines and they're never going to become a billionaire mining coal you know they're never even going to be uh, no standard of living no minimum wage you can mm-hmm. pay them a penny and if they agreed to mine your coal and you got one family the dad died the mom has five kids she would send her five-year-olds into the mines to dig coal and so there was a famous picture in american press i think in 1907 that finally circulated showing all of these young kids all under the age of 10 from a coal mine and that's why we have child labor laws in the United States now. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, that's why you need 
uh, interference with corporations, which themselves, again, are so much more notorious in the state because they are totally unaccountable to anybody except the king at the head of it. Mm -hmm. And so police, they come out of this history of total brutality for working people. They have always been instruments of corporations like the Rockefellers mm -hmm. and these people that have enormous money that set up the public relations industry in the 1920s to lie to us. And then the stock market totally crashes because, you know, they were doing great. The banks were doing great. But police, you know, again, they came out of slave patrols, runaway mm -hmm. slaves. They would be cowed up by sheriffs. You know, when I was at the protests in Spokane, I noticed that the second day and the first day, what the police did is they just guarded the mall where all the corporations were. And the next day I was walking by that mall and I noticed that all of the, you know, Apple store, all the corporate names, they were all boarded up, but the small businesses were not. Yeah. And it was, for me, a dead giveaway where their priorities lied. And, and, you know, you hear a lot of people saying, well, all these rioters, they're destroying businesses and stuff. But at the end of the day, the police don't care about defending the local businesses. Yeah, They'll, and they, they don't. I saw this personally in Seattle. We, and, and to be clear, first of all, riots work. They have always worked. It's the best thing. Abraham Lincoln said, all people have a right to overthrow their own government for mm -hmm. revolution. You know, it seems to be, it's, it's so weird, the cognitive dissonance that's going on, especially with our conservatives, the, the ones that have sworn by the don't tread on me. Yeah. And, you know, they don't feel like they're being treaded on. Well, yeah, because they got private property in the mm -hmm. woods. Sure. And, and they don't live in a city where people that are low income live. And so in a city, for me, you know, and I'm I'm a white privileged male, and I've never ever had a good interaction with police. I've had police be very nice to me. I've mm -hmm. had police do me favors. Uh, I've never seen a cop prevent a crime in my life, not mm -hmm. once. I've only ever seen them respond to crime. Cops don't prevent crime; they respond to crime, and they only respond to specific crime, especially expensive property rights. They mm -hmm. protect property. When I was in Seattle. They let all, like everyone was looting the Walgreens and had already looted the Target, but a group of 25 cops just stood in front of the Target, 10 feet away from dozens of people looting the local pharmacy, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and they watched it because they were protecting Target. Mm -hmm. And for them, that's where their priorities lie. And sometimes they just do this when they don't have a lot of control. They just let it happen because, you know, and when people say like, well, all these writers. Well, guess what? It worked. You know, nine out of twelve council members in Seattle mm -hmm. voted to defund Seattle police by fifty percent, which is what the protesters were asking for in mm -hmm. the first place. And it's like you guys are clearly showing us what you think works because when we march, you do nothing. Mm -hmm. When we march and we say stuff, when Colin Kaepernick takes a knee, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. You guys mock us and you continue to mock us. Okay, you're gonna mock us when we burn down your bank. You're still gonna <laughs> mock us. Go ahead, see if it works. Are you going to decentralize us by getting Nancy Pelosi and the liberals out of office? Go for it. We hate her. So <laughs> thanks. Thank you. And so they don't know how to attack us because they don't know why we're protesting. Mm -hmm. They don't understand it. And for us, it's like, no, we hate Jeff Bezos just as much as we hate the police. And so mm -hmm. for us, I never saw one small business uh, even damaged in Seattle. Not one. I'm sure there's a couple. Mm -hmm. uh, one smaller one was because it was the uh, th like a corporate thrift store owned by the wife of the cop who murdered 
Shalina Lyles. Mm -hmm. So so that was a targeted attack. I also saw a Nintendo store with one window broken, nothing stolen out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw a guy take a backpack out and then put it back in because it was a whole thing. <laughs> but other than that, all the stores I saw shattered, they shattered Amazon specifically, like mm -hmm. the grocery store to Amazon, stuff like that. And people are like, well, you know, th those are local stores too. And, you know, mm -hmm. and my grandpa today was telling me how some black business owner. That's a common counterargument. He's like, yeah, this black business owner, he was a cop himself for 30 years. Was he the barbecue guy from Texas? Maybe, I don't know. There, there's been a lot of uh, counter-arguments all pointing about how, how, well, these local black business owners, you know, they had their businesses damaged. Uh, is, that what, is that what you want from the riots, et cetera? And how much of that is true, do you think? And how much is kind of framed and manipulated to make the protesters look like these terrible, just destructive anarchists with no real end goal? Well, yeah, I, I definitely think the latter, because, I mean, I was looking at a comic from 1964, 1963, uh, that had Martin Luther King and a reporter asking him, so what's your nonviolent march going to be like tomorrow? And in the back of the cartoon, like, the city's, like, on fire and in shambles because <laughs> of the riot. And in retrospect, you look at it as the change, like, he brought, you know, the second Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Our first one was actually much better that we passed in, in uh, 1868 was much mm -hmm. better. Uh, unfortunately, America was so white supremacist after Lincoln was killed, uh, it was upended. And that's why we impeached our first president was because mm -hmm. he hampered reconstruction. And we didn't do, you know, really that the, one of the ways that we wanted to bring about this is to just make people aware. Like when I speak to a lot of my conservative family members, they have no idea of mm -hmm. even the basic history. It's like we need to retalk and relitigate historical mm -hmm. facts now. And there's a lot too. It, it's, it can't just be communicated with a few sentences. Yeah. It but, takes like a class course. But what does communicate stuff really efficiently is property and damaging private property. And mm -hmm. not just anyone's. I have not heard of one farm that's been ransacked. I have not heard of one Proud Boys house that has been set on fire. I have not heard of one white supremacist that has been hurt from these uh, protests. Mm -hmm. I, so clearly these Black Lives Matter protests are not about finding and punishing racist people. It's mm -hmm. not about finding the one cop who killed George Floyd and burning his house down. Because it, we are tired of this happening every single day across this whole country again and again and again and this like watching jokes on tv from the 90s about cops getting stopped by or black people getting stopped by cops you know disproportionately it's like nothing has changed mm -hmm. nothing has changed at all and they're like well you know statistically you're missing the point when we say like nothing has changed because the the structure of police are dangerous in my experience police only give you tickets for for petty stuff, you know, my, uh, I had a friend and their, their dad was a head cop. And for him, he's like, yeah, I was so bored. A lot of times on my overnight shift, I would just go to the really poor areas that I knew people were going to be doing crime in the city and just try and get some caseloads, you know, just try and mm -hmm. get something done for the night. A lot of times I'm just watching something on my phone bored. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are guys that come out from very, a lot of them, very little education, mm -hmm. very little social education. And so for them, they get this hardened heart towards 
people that are struggling and they see everyone as the same and they think all criminals are the same all black people are the same all all types of people that are poor are the same mm-hmm. and you know for me i just don't see the the use like you can't get publicly funded teachers in every city but you can get a SWAT team mm-hmm. with like tanks that are from Afghanistan like all of this drone technology that we're using to blow up kids around the world is now coming home to do surveillance on American citizens like it's ridiculous and mm-hmm. it's unfair and it's it's unconstitutional and it's like well it's also unconstitutional to scare people from wanting to go to Seattle and it's like well you should have set up a society that's more fair so that you wouldn't have like yes i'm sure it's scary for privileged people that don't live in seattle to come and drive there and they can't go to pike street market and walk the farmer's market because they feel threatened but like we're tired of feeling threatened by police you know if i watch videos of any other country in the world which have lower levels of like actual crime the only reason we have higher crime here is because we have more laws and more police to prosecute Mm -hmm. those crimes and over there they can be so much more personable with the police they can even talk back to them even if they were to punch a cop the cop would probably punch him back and say don't do that again Mm -hmm. here if you even swung at a cop you're lucky if you survive yeah now i i hate to bring this up but do you think those that data might be affected by the fact that guns are so regularly used by americans i mean every other country in, in Europe, they don't really have a culture of having guns. So the danger of civilians to a policeman isn't perceived as much. Well, I mean, yeah, but that's not a, that's not an excuse. Like, if anything, these cops should be supporting the Second Amendment. They shouldn't mm-hmm. be, like, punishing people for living up to their Second Amendment. <laughs> we have every right to carry a gun. Mm-hmm. You don't have a right to kill me because I might have a gun. That's my constitutional right to have a gun. So for you to kill me because I might have one is wrong. Mm-hmm. You can't kill someone unless your life has been threatened first. Shots should be fired first. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and if if they aren't careful, we're gonna do what Australia and England did, and we're gonna take the guns away from the cops. Mm-hmm. That's what they did there. And if they're not careful, we have the numbers, we have the majority. That's how democracy works. Uh, it doesn't work how you know Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi wants it to work. And so for us, it's. It just seems like the cops do enormously more crime enorm- and they legalize worse war crimes. And they're mm-hmm. okay. It's like, why is it that we're being persecuted for tiny little offenses like jaywalking, speeding, not signaling, and you ruin someone's life or like a DUI or any of these things people are being persecuted with to the full extent of the law. But the really serious corporate crimes, you can pay someone to, to do it. Like car manufacturers, if they pay the fine, they're like, eh. We'll pay the fine. We know that we will legally get busted for this, for ruining people's lives because we didn't put the right seatbelts in the car. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it actually is cheaper for us to pay the $17 million fine than to pay $170 million to change out all the seatbelts. From Fire Club, isn't it? Probably. <laughs> Better be. Um, now, a common argument is what? You want to defund the police? You want to abolish the police yes. and just let crime go rampant? Yes. For example, a couple weekends ago in Detroit, uh, seven people were killed and 30 were injured from a shooting in, in just some restaurant area. Tragic. Yes, it is tragic. And now that kind of crime in the inner city is extremely common and could be responsible for the escalation of uh, police brutality. 
Now that is a problem, but it's how, how do we address a problem like that? Where we're already so deeply ingrained in creating these cultures of violence that there doesn't seem to be any way out of it. Well, I, I think it's to spread out the concentration of responses. Like it's not fair to mm -hmm. police departments, I think, to be responsible for everything, to mm -hmm. be people's mental health workers, to be their babysitter. To show up to every noise complaint. Yeah, to be the tow man. Like, yeah, every noise complaint. We have no social officers to be able to respond to other stuff like a lot of times people are like i wish i could just have a direct line to the fire department instead because mm -hmm. that way i could call an ambulance and i wouldn't have to worry about some cop because i a lot of anyone that tries to say well if you aren't breaking the law you have nothing to fear mm -hmm. and that's just unfortunately now we have to explain why that's bad to people mm -hmm. a lot of people don't understand the dystopian language you're using or they haven't read george orwell so they just don't understand what the type of totalitarian authoritarian society you're enabling when you say oh if you have nothing to hide you have no reason to well, be you scared you shouldn't be afraid of being stopped and frisked yeah but that's not fair yeah. that's just not i mean the whole country was founded against the idea that a king has a sovereign right to your body to mm -hmm. your property to your everything and if you're threatening to them, then they have a right to take it all away. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's the world we live in. But I think it's worth fighting and it works. And it's a far more just and fair society, I think, to have mental health counselors. If, if you, and to look at the funding, I mean, $400 million for the police department. I mean, that's just outrageous. Mm -hmm. And they have... And it's spent on nice cars, and it's spent on, you know... Always. Why aren't better, there new chalkboards? Better guns, yeah. et cetera. And you don't have new equipment for all these other mm -hmm. health institutions and education. Yeah, nothing's going bridges. into the mental health of, of the police officers themselves, et cetera. Now, a common counter-argument to the social worker um, thing, where we, we get social workers to do many of the jobs that police wow. do, is that uh, they wouldn't be able to do them correctly. I mean, I, I think you, you've probably seen this meme, too. It's a couple of cops laughing about uh, a social worker trying to de-escalate the situation with a, you know, 280-pound crazy person, like, taking a shit on the street. Uh, well, I, in my <laughs> experience, I, I find it's not that hard to de-escalate that people trying to take a poop on the street. I've done it before. Yeah. In my personal you life. you so have experience me, with mental health yeah. and, and providing mental health care for people. And in my experience, the worst thing that can ever happen with mental health people is when cops show up. Mm -hmm. they, they agitate people with autism, with schizophrenia. They just make it worse. Even the cops that are regular with this patient, like they mm -hmm. know them. They know their disorders. They know their personality. And they still like clearly trigger and escalate things totally unnecessarily. And it's just, again, it's not crime prevention. It's response to crime. You know, sometimes hours later, I recently had my car stolen. Police were no help. I got my own car back, <laughs> you know? And so pointing to a couple unrealistic examples, like, yes, there could be a man that's ex-military that goes out and starts shooting everyone up. That's happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yes, we need specific responses to that. Police, in some mm -hmm. cases. Mm -hmm. But that's why we're wanting to 
defund them by 50% and abolishing them would be to abolish the current police. And so does that mean we should still have armed tactical responses? Yes, because you're still going to mm-hmm. have terrorist threats. You're still going to have people. Well, that's a... See, that's a, that's, a com- that's a common thing that's kind of lost in, in the discussion. People don't get that. Uh, we're not going to abolish the idea of exactly. armed response. We just want to abolish the current system and create it anew. Yeah. Well, and if you have more armed citizens, you don't really need mm-hmm. police because then, I mean, I'm not necessarily a, like advocating for guns or anything, but I'm just saying that it really opens up and stops a lot of crime when you have people that, you know, are protecting their communities. Mm-hmm. They, they are so scared and helpless that they don't know who to call. And maybe you don't have to call the cops, you call your neighbor. And if you had a better relationship with your neighbor, you would know that they would protect you. Mm-hmm. And that maybe you can have neighborhood watches that are armed and not just right-wing militia people that are looking for to protect property, mm-hmm. but people that are looking to protect human life. And so that's that's different than the case like racist like George Zimmerman that kills someone because he's walking through a neighborhood mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, you don't look like you belong here. You know, I think it's different if you were to have community members, not just because you're right. I think if you were to just replace police with a bunch of social workers, social workers are not the best and mm-hmm. they throw people into the system, too, and mm-hmm. they get and it can be just as dangerous. So I think it has to be a, just a tactical response across the board and that if you're going to defund 400 million dollars which is just ridiculous so they can all have brand new cruisers it's like well they have to be ahead of every criminal and so, <laughs> but but you're every criminal everyone every citizen is a potential criminal mm-hmm. and so giving them total power so that you can't fight back almost eliminates the point of the second amendment because like you don't have the right to nuclear weapons some stupid mm-hmm. libertarian capitalists think you should have right to nuclear weapons and they support terrorist organizations because they think, well, free market, you know, everyone should have access. If it's real, then everyone should have it, right? These are people that are not scientists. So the the instinctual response from policemen, from people, from conservatives and centrists is usually to get extremely defensive when uh, defund or abolish the police is mentioned. How can we actually find a way to communicate and find common ground with these people? Go back to the history. We did not start this country with police, unless you are counting slave patrol. But we didn't have police. Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson did not want police, was very against the idea of it. So was almost all of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And so I think that crime has not changed. Crime mm-hmm. has not evolved. Crime has not gotten worse at all. The response to crime has changed and gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, you see protesters. I mean, I've been reading about all the different revolutions, like in Paris in 1871, the Paris Commune. They took over all Paris. The anarchists did for three months. And in response, and the National Guard joined the people, and the military and the police came in and slaughtered 20,000 people and then deported 8,000 Paris citizens mm-hmm. from France. So a lot of them to slave colonies and just far off. Do you believe revolution is necessary right now? Oh, absolutely. But but how it come about it is... Revolution historically has worked, but it's always sort of given way to opportunist to take power. Yeah, that's always, that's always a fear, but it's, it's, that's like the fear of like, when you go through a breakup, like, 
I know this is something I need to do, but, mm-hmm. or, you know, when you, will you ever find anyone quit, else? Yeah, or you quit a job that you are being really just horribly disrespected and mm-hmm. miserable at your life. And you're like, what if I don't find, you know, sometimes you do have to take a risk mm-hmm. and bad stuff can happen if you're not careful. So you got to carefully take risks mm-hmm. and you want to have good people, but it doesn't matter. I think things, we have to believe in democracy and we have mm-hmm. to believe that in a lot of comeback people will say like, well, what about the rule of mob, like mob rule like mm-hmm. in, in France after their revolution, they had the terror where they just started decapitating scientists and random people, not just the king, but everybody. Yeah. And that can happen. But I, I think we live in a pretty mature society than we used to. Mm-hmm. I, I really do think people have a pretty good moral conscience today. Like people, all the protests I've been to, they self-police pretty well. I mean, mm-hmm. like I said, I never saw one small business. There's a lot of criticism yeah. from the mainstream media in this state about Chaz yeah. specifically. I mean, they, they say that the murders and rapes were running amok and all the business owners felt threatened and the people no. that lived there felt threatened. How yeah. much of that is true and how much isn't? Because 50, 50, 50. 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, number of proud boys that showed up with weapons many people at chas were armed in defense and i mean i myself got shot up by a proud boy bullet holes in my car mm-hmm. uh for nothing for no reason he saw some protesters get out of my car and was triggered you know at the same time that could have killed you oh yeah it went right through my headrest <laughs> that's crazy is that what the hole in your car outside is yeah that's the, insane went chill, yeah but uh he messed it was dark. Uh, You've dodged death like way. How many? How many lives do you have, David? Like, well, I've had four near-death experiences, <laughs> so, or I mean, four instances where I should have died. I, mean, I remember just outside, out there, you tr- climbing that tree with three trees in it, and you fell like fifteen feet, just scraping your back the entire way down. Yeah. I don't know how you're still here, honestly. Well, it's because your mom gave me a bath to watch. I remember the, that. Yeah, that Epsom salts or whatever. That helped a lot. <laughs> uh, I think, but I did see a lot of these Proud Boys instigating stuff. I There was one black man that died because someone came in and just shot him. Whether or not who he's connected with, we have no idea. He could have been there. I mean, it's COVID, so you got 15-year-olds that are not in school. Everyone's showing up. You get random stuff, catching random stuff on fire, trash cans. But the main organizers are trying to be like, no, we don't want to hurt small businesses. We don't Mm -hmm. want to just cause random chaos. We want it to be targeted, like banks and Jeff Bezos, and that's about it, and the police and federal buildings and stuff, because that is where our anger is. Our anger is not with business owners, but unfortunately they love business so much that you see them concede and give us what we want. It's like, if you don't want to say that violent destruction, not of people, but of property, I Mm -hmm. I do not condone violent, uh, just like I'm, you know, hurting people. You know, I I don't think that gets anything done, but I I do think that, property destruction is useful and mm-hmm. it's very different and when people try and equate human life with property i think they get really dangerous and a lot of people don't see the philosophical difference they're like well i my body is my property and therefore everything else that is my property is as important as my body mm-hmm. but that's there's a difference between personal property and private property private property for hundreds of years meant slavery. And so if you had private property, that meant slavery, just 
throughout 1600s, throughout 1700s, and throughout the 1800s, if you say the word property, it was a, a synonym for slave. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's just a history to private property. There's, there's a history of why we have an electoral college in this country still, and other countries do not. And so I, I think that the demographics in America have not changed. You still have the South and the North and the name of Republican and Democrat have switched. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the, the countries that were, or the states that were South are now all Republican and the states that were all North are all now Democrat. And, and uh, how did that happen? I, I think it was, was it the Republican strategy? Yeah, well, yeah, they, they, uh, the Republicans wanted to switch over a bunch of racist Democrats in the South. And so Nixon started doing the strategy, like you said, where they started trying to win up votes in the South and trying to switch all of the Democrats from the Dixie Party that were all racist in origin over to the Republican Party, who was becoming more and more a party of corporation, mm -hmm. which now that's all it is. Well, same with the Democrat Party nowadays. Mm -hmm. Sadly. Yeah. And so less so, but not much less so at all. So at least they like pretend like they're not. <laughs> uh, but so they're both enormously corrupt and they, they switch sides. But I, I still think that, you know, you can't just vote Democrat and expect things to change because they are not the yeah. Democrats are, are just as much to blame for a lot of this. You know, mm -hmm. Joe Biden and Bill Clinton passed the 1993 crime bill, which is the reason that all of these, uh, this war on drugs that's really ridiculous got just so intensified and militarized. And previously, none of that was true. Now it is. And so I think they have an enormous part to blame. I think that if we want to have a more free society, we need to get these people that are career politicians out, even people I might agree with, out, mm -hmm. because I think career politicians are just so dangerous. And you need to diversify the police so that way they don't have a monopoly on emergencies, you know, so mm -hmm. that way you create tons of different forces that will go in and, you know, maybe give firefighters guns instead, okay? Like, <laughs> not that that's the solution, but I'm just saying that... Uh, like there is, I, there's I a certain just, kind of personality that wants to be a person in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, I went to high school with two current cops. One's a Bellevue police officer. The other's a Seattle SWAT. And they are, you know, they fit the stereotype mm -hmm. in every in every way. You know, one one's a gun nut. He has done dozens of his own guns, does lots of, you know, tactical training in the woods and stuff. I'm going to quick reload. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and he'll film himself doing that. And, and I get it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I have guns. You know, guns are fun. Yeah, guns and, are nice. But uh, himself, though, is is he just checks all the boxes, you know, mm -hmm. drives a brand new Ford truck, painted really nice, you know, loves dressing a certain way, wears a certain type of shoe, like they they really have an identity that they try to fall behind. And not all cops are like this at all. I mean, my, my friend's dad was much different than that, but not too much. He mm -hmm. had a brand new truck. He had tons of guns. He 
probably dress differently and listen to different music, but, but, you know, their view on life is the same and it's a law and order. They don't really believe in liberty. They believe mm -hmm. in law and order, which for them, they're like, well, you can't have liberty unless you have law and order. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I disagree with that. Do you that. think the mental exam that police have to take to get into the force is flawed to kind of seek these individuals out? Must be. <laughs> it's got to be. I mean, I don't, I don't know about it, but I assume mm -hmm. just because, and I mean, there are a lot of good people that become cops, but there are no good cops. So mm -hmm. like, just like there are a lot of good people that become serial killers. And that's where, no good serial yeah, killers. that's where, you know, you, you probably lose a lot of people. I mean, yeah. the saying, uh, all cops are bastards, usually yeah. is an extremely dividing uh, phrase because people are like, well, no my uncle's a cop or my, my dad's a cop and he's a good man. I know he Probably wants, bastard. yeah, I know, I know he wants the best for our community, etc. So he what doesn't. he does it because he's a cop. He doesn't, if he wanted the best for his community, he'd be a teacher. Mm -hmm. He would be a doctor. He would be a garbage man. Okay. These, he would work for the power company. These mm -hmm. are people that want the best for your community because they're working in your community. Almost always cops do not live in the city they police. And so, therefore, they don't have a personal relationship like we used to a long time ago. Albeit only white people, but cops used to be a lot more. Do you at least think that the cops believe they're doing what's best for their community? Well, yeah, they they love themselves and they think they're the last blue line of defense <laughs> from. And it's like, <clears throat> but you know, so do the Nazis. Mm -hmm. So so do Chinese People's Liberation Army. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're liberating the people with your army. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm sure. <laughs> no, people liberate themselves every time. And so to believe that... People's Liberation Army, isn't that... Uh, is that Sierra Leone? No, 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 that's, that's uh, China. That's Chinese, China. the Chinese army. It's called okay. the People's Liberation Army, or PLA. And these People's Army, you know, when they go into Hong Kong to suppress free speech, you know, that's... Or the recent extradition bill, which caused, if you did a crime, you could be extradited to China... And that's why there's all these protests in Hong Kong, because they're like, no, no, we want to be tried under like a more democratic mm -hmm. legal system than somewhere where the police are worshipped, like in China, mm -hmm. right? That's what the right wing here, they don't realize that China is very right wing. Communism in general is, is can be right wing in agenda. And, and to have right wing communist dictators like in China or North Korea, they're right wing because they are authoritarian. Because mm -hmm. authoritarianism in general is right-wing because it believes that the state should have control and power over individuals, whether and if they're breaking the law. But that's open to my interpretation because mm -hmm. I'm the judge, jury, and executioner. Now, Hong Kong is, a, is an interesting thing going on here because I feel like most everyone supports Hong Kong's independence, but for different reasons. Yeah. I mean... They were colonized by the British, right? Mm -hmm. So the British want to keep their power there. And, and in turn, the United States wants our ties through there to be secured. Yeah. And meanwhile, all the lib, lib lefts want democracy to stay. Yeah. So it, it's weird how, you know, there's sort of a solidarity between almost everyone in the world to keep Hong Kong, quote unquote, liberated. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the federal troops that were sent to Portland and are now in Seattle and what they are doing and if it's effective and if it is effective from what perspective is it effective? But my biggest question is, do you think they've escalated the violence further? 
I, I thought that was a dead giveaway. But. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes. But uh, so the biggest federal agency sending in is Customs Border Patrol. So to send in the Border Patrol, they are they have a special forces unit of CPD in that or uh, CP CBP Border <laughs> Customs Border uh, Patrol. They have this special forces called BORTAC. And mm -hmm. that's who they're sending to Portland and Seattle. So the special forces uh, branch under Customs and Border is non-responsive to the Constitution because if anything is within the 100-mile border, mm -hmm. and that includes the coastline, so Portland and Seattle are within 100 miles of the coast, or if you're 100 miles from the it border. It includes the coastline. Yeah, all borders of the United States. So anything, oh, wow. that, and that includes 200 million. So that's the loophole that got him out there. Yep. So 200 million out of the 330 million Americans live in this gray constitutional zone where federal mm -hmm. agents are allowed, especially Border Patrol, are allowed to come and do stuff that state police are not allowed to do. They can set up random checkpoints. They can mm -hmm. set up all sorts of tactical stuff. They don't have to give you any reason for arresting you. They can say on national security, and they're able to do whatever they want. And that's what's so scary is that it's now... But this has been true since we invented the Department of Homeland Security in 2002. You know, mm -hmm. going back to your question of like police, I'm like, well, we have a whole history of this country without police. We have a whole history of this country without a Department of Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. and, you know, without these extra governmental organizations that are just unnecessary. Homeland Security, that, the language they use there, it, it really dresses it up to be like this wonderful homeland national kind of defense. Security. Uh, even defense. You know, yeah, we, we defense. stopped calling it the defense Department spending. Of, we stopped calling it the Department of War mm -hmm. once it became a Department of War. We started calling it the Defense Department mm -hmm. after World War II. So And we don't do a whole lot of defending. We uh No, that's the no, no. <laughs> So it, it's pretty eight hundred bases around the world. Mm -hmm. we it. Most all we have over forty seven active military conflicts in the world, almost all of them in Africa right now. Mm -hmm. That's excluding Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people really understand the level of um, empire that America has around the world. I mean, 800 military bases. That's the ones we know about. Yeah, I mean, and, the CIA and when you sites. tell someone that, how do they rationalize that? Oh, we're just trying to defend, uh, we're trying to keep, yeah. the, keep the peace around the world. Yeah, thank, thank the Clintons for that. Yeah, they're quoting... Uh, Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. No, and they believe it. My, yeah. You know, my parents believe that to mm -hmm. the court. They really do. And so do my grandparents. Mm -hmm. They really do. And they think that war is, is necessary and justified to stop a threat, even if that threat is a uneducated, poor Vietnamese farmer living mm -hmm. in the jungle with no resources, and they want to democratize their village. And so they hang their corrupt village leader cut his stomach open because he had raped all of the village women in there. And then America sees that and says, look what the communists are doing in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Let's burn their entire jungle to the ground. Let's burn all of it to the mm -hmm. ground. And many times America acts through proxy of other places yep, and other Vietnam. people. Yep. I mean, I think we, we're doing that now in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And I think we did that in uh, Chile a, a while ago. We, yep. we used CIA-funded 
certain group to overthrow a democratically elected leader. Yeah, and in Chile, and or well, and in uh, Nicaragua, El Salvador, even Honduras. Syria. We we funded terrorists. Mm-hmm. We we made, created ISIS to try to get rid of um, what's his name. Uh, the guy in president of Syria. I, oh, Bashar al-Assad. Bashar al-Assad. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Assad, you know, he's himself a horrible dictator. And mm-hmm. He's got statues and pictures of himself all over Syria. Like, like <laughs> 30 feet tall. Like, it's ridiculous. You go into downtown, if you go into Aleppo or anything, it's just crazy how much just propaganda. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, so it's a huge power struggle because the Russians support Mm-hmm. You know, it all comes down to the oil pipeline they want through there and the oil pipeline we want through there. Yeah, yeah. And they don't, I mean, in the end, they'll probably find some sort of common interest because they, but they don't like that uh, Assad has more love for the Russians than he does for mm-hmm. us. And so we don't really care about the atrocities you do as a dictator as long as you're on our payroll. Just like Saddam, we love Saddam Hussein. Like George Bush Sr. Mm-hmm. loved him throughout the 80s and 90s. We supported him while he was doing his worst genocidal crimes. Until he did something without our permission. Yeah, and that's and that's when it, it drew the line. It's like it's not when he was gassing the Kurds or his own people or killing 200,000 people with mm-hmm. gas. It was after he'd finished all of his worst atrocities. Then all of a sudden, it was just too much because mm-hmm. <laughs> he because he he went into Kuwait and that was just too much. We didn't want him to do that and. So, yeah, I think there's definitely a, an imperial aspect that is hard, just like it was very hard mm-hmm. for the British to understand, for British people to understand, like, no, you, you do not have a right to India. Like, mm-hmm. India has a right to self-determine. It's like, no, no, this is ours. They believed that until, you know, 1949. Yeah. The guys that were helping them uh, start civilized society. Yeah. And it's always with a beneficent, I mean, they always think, no, we're nation building. You know, mm-hmm. there's... Every example in colonial history mm-hmm. of people go in with good, except in the case of uh, the Belgians, which, you know, they went into the Congo with explicitly horrid atrocity. Like, they were open about their war crimes. Mm-hmm. Like, no, we're here to colonize you, subjugate you, because you are less than us. <laughs> Whereas the British went to India, and unlike American colonization, which is a little different than, than European colonization... Mm-hmm. They let Indians still rule. They didn't have a segregated society mm-hmm. like we did with, like, black Americans here. You know, they treated Indians with more respect than we treat people. Yeah, which the, is why Hitler, uh, in my comps... India Trading Company actually helped benefit both countries, even if there was yeah. a little bit of a, a power trip going on. Well, yeah, I mean, India, no, India definitely ruined and destroyed... Uh, or was ruined and destroyed by the British because at the time in the 1600s, India was one of the best trading ports in the world, mm-hmm. and the British stole all the sail and glass making technology, brought it back to England, and then caused massive famines where millions would die in India. Mm-hmm. Millions would die of starvation because of the British uh, sanctions and because of famines they imposed. And that's why, you know, but their so their version of colonialism is different. And what I was saying about like. Hitler wrote about his love for America because of its segregated society and the way that we treat Africans here. He was like, oh, that's how we should treat the Jews. And that's, that's, we should take examples of that. That's what a true Aryan race looks like is what America was trying to do with their free country. And so he, he's very open about his love for the Jim Crow Mm -hmm. laws in America and, and bases most of his Jewish laws off of those. 
And so, but in general, the nature of colonialism is when you you say that you have some sort of humanitarian mission to mm -hmm. save this country. But a lot of times it's like, well, maybe even if this country is going to suffer a little bit more, maybe it should do it itself or with maybe a more less biased institution than just mm -hmm. America, which clearly has its own agenda, just like England does, you know. So that's that's just a hard pill for people to swallow, but it's you know it's historical. It's backed yeah. up by every historian in the world, except you know a couple really fringe, very partisan mm -hmm. conservatives that are usually very very well off and have a reason that they've never had to look outside of their privilege before because it works for them. Mm -hmm. And this narrative of history works. I mean, I I bought into it until I was in high school. You know, yeah, I remember you were in uh, the old uh, JROTC. Oh, yeah, I, I, I used to love that. Yeah, I guess that was just too much Desert Storm. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was fun to play. So. Uh, I want to close on the topic of aliens because that's a bit more, well, I hope, lighthearted. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just a little bit more fun. Yeah. Uh, the Pentagon recently admitted that they've found spacecraft or craft on Earth that was not built on Earth. That, that is their words. Uh, are you excited or frightened by that? Excited. So am I. Yeah. Uh, excited. And what do you think this means for society? Because I haven't seen a whole lot of reactions from people. Uh, people don't seem, it doesn't seem to click with anyone. Like, yeah. like you're telling them like a, a volcano just erupted and they're like, yeah. It's like, what, what do you mean? Yeah. Like, this is huge. <laughs> I think they probably, because people don't in America, well, in a lot of countries, but especially here, don't know where to get information mm -hmm. and how accurate it is. They think even official information is not true. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's probably why people are just really skeptical now because they're just unfortunately just like skeptical of everything. But we still have really good orders in the world like the AP and Reuters and even though I disagree with some reporting mm -hmm. there's still really good reports and so even even though you know stuff like you know I disagree with a lot of stuff in the New York Times and they are very corrupt but at the same time they still write really good investigative pieces sometimes mm -hmm. sometimes investigation pieces are just so good they can't not publish it because mm -hmm. they'll sell so many copies. You know that's what happened with the Pentagon Papers, mm -hmm. with the Washington Post. Now Washington Post. Well, is well it really comes down to who's writing it. Is what they wrote uh, conflict with the the publisher's actual beliefs, and and how good it is. And yeah. and once in a while you get something that you know the establishment doesn't really care about, and they'll let it get out there, and it's this fantastic piece of um, reporting. Yeah. yeah, but uh, also sometimes it doesn't happen that way. <laughs> yeah, I think I think more often than not it gets suppressed mm -hmm. by a lot of institutions, and you see some fringe stuff. I mean, there's been a lot of reports from over the years during wars, different intelligence services will leak stuff to the press, but their superior at the CIA or somewhere didn't want it leaked, and so they go to a secondary press, and so mm -hmm. it gets sometimes published in a tabloid thing. And that mm -hmm. actually, that has happened. Like that sort of stuff happens where That's someone's true. like, I, I want to get this out. And the New York Times is so in bed with my superior that he won't listen to me. Mm -hmm. So I'll just go off book. That or after the editing process, the, the piece is unrecognizable from its uh, inception. Oh, yeah. I've, I've like, had that uh, Like you were mentioning earlier with the documentaries. 
Yeah, and that's, yeah, they definitely edit it for their agenda. But, you know, so I think that's why people aren't maybe as excited. I, I haven't seen that. <laughs> I, I'd be interested to, to read that because I, but I've heard, I've heard about the spacecraft. I did see the, the piece in the New York Times recently mm -hmm. about the, their older videos, but the Navy. Yeah, they released three videos. And they confirmed, like, mm -hmm. no, these were, these are real. These aren't fake videos, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it was just a few days ago that the Pentagon released that statement. Uh, the, the guy in charge of the, uh, I think, I don't remember the specific name, but it was some UFO investigation team came out and, and said that quote, well, you know, that they weren't built on Earth and that they did have uh, pieces of this aircraft. Um, well, that, I mean, that just opens up so many, if it's true, if mm -hmm. that's true, you know, first, how can he verify that it's not built on Earth? Mm -hmm. Does that mean that it has a bunch of materials that are not that are only like space rock or like, I wonder what- That's the thing. There's a, I think what they were saying specifically was that, was that it was technology that they could not recreate here. So if, if this is true and there is some sort of, this was either built by humans in the future mm -hmm. or by another civilization- Interdimensional in beings or, or space. Yeah, I guess those are the three options. Either mm -hmm. us from the future, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you shouldn't be able to go backwards in time according to mm -hmm. space time. So you shouldn't be able to do that, but it could be from mm -hmm. the future. It could be another dimension because there is at least 10 dimensions potentially that there could be and mm -hmm. we only have access to this one. Or it could be an alien mm -hmm. from another, another civilization somewhere else in the cosmos. And so, you know, that doesn't seem too far-fetched because I mean the universe is just so mm -hmm. massive it's surprising but it's also so massive that it is surprising that you mm -hmm. even find anything so, yeah. it, so it kind of goes both ways it's like it's so big that it's not that surprising that if there is intelligence it wouldn't be able to reach us well if we think about it there could be civilizations that are millions and millions of years older than us and, and are millions of years ahead in technology Another interesting thing that was discovered in the past week, archaeologically, was that a cave in Mexico. Uh, they found charcoal, which dated to about 30,000 years ago, with a bunch of uh, spear points or uh, projectile points they believe to be artifacts. If that's true, that predates the current theory of when humans reached the Americas by about 15,000 years. Yeah. yeah. That, that would be with... before the last ice age that they had already done. Exactly. And do you know how many times... That was I've, in nature. Yeah. I've done jobs where they've told me not to dig below the glacial layer because we know humans weren't here uh, that far back. It's like, how many times... Did you miss something? Did we miss something? Oh. It really makes me wonder. Granted, that glacial layer, uh, you know only exists in, in some parts of Washington and in the northern part of the U.S. But even then, there, there's evidence to show, um, you know, how, how old something is through stratigraphy. And it just kills me that, uh, that academia has been so stubborn about uh, theories that were loose to begin with. Yeah. Um, now, there is some pushback with this recent discovery saying, like, oh, well, the, the charcoal could have been naturally occurring and the artifacts don't really look like artifacts, but you will always get pushback with the paradigm shift. Yeah. That, that is 100% consistent with every paradigm shift that's ever happened. Uh, that paired with the, the alien stuff coming out, it's like Graham Hancock is like smiling right now. You know, I, and granted, you know, that show Ancient Aliens, 
not exactly accurate, even from an archaeological point of view. I, I remember I watched this video. It was like a four hour video debunking literally everything yeah. from ancient aliens. It's unfortunate. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, aliens could have very well had a part to play in, in uh, prehistory, but uh, it's just not in the way they said. Yeah. It's like kind of like that Finding Bigfoot show. It's like just a bunch of idiots to speak for a, a platform that might have some actual uh, uh, weight to it. Well, that, I think, even happens with some of the protests. Some of the, mm -hmm. there was one guy on CNN at Chaz, and for him, he was, uh, he was in the hip-hop industry himself, though, as a domestic violence abuser of women. It was reported tons of black activists were, like, trying to voice, like, this guy is nasty. CNN kept on, like, interviewing him, having him on. They would call him the leader of Chaz. And, I, I've heard that. Yeah, they was, already have a leader. Yeah, his yeah. name is Raz, but, like, no, no. This guy would come in with a Tesla, strapped with an AR-15, and just shoot music videos. He would go into the crowd to shoot a music <laughs> video and then leave. While we're getting pepper sprayed by police on the front line, he would then go leave to edit his music video 10 minutes after he's in the crowd. Just <laughs> 10 minutes standing on top of like a van mm -hmm. with a megaphone. And he, for the first like two weeks, he brought a lot of supplies. He brought like a generator, mm -hmm. a projector, so we could watch documentaries right outside the police station in the street. We set up like a documentary That's library. Pretty cool. Yeah, it was cool. So at first, like, everyone was like, oh, he's really cool. Mm -hmm. He seems nice. I didn't know about any of this domestic violence stuff. Someone's like, oh, yeah. Him and his friends made like a rap video where they just like <laughs> gang beat like a stripper to death you know, and then like kick her in the back and stuff. And I'm like, geez. Jeez, and man. it's like, yeah, they did it for like domestic violence awareness. And I was like, oh. Yeah, awareness, man. And so, yeah, there was, but, you know, there was a lot of voice from a lot of women that were more so involved in, in this movement. And they're, they're the ones that are kind of responsible for keeping it more nonviolent. Mm -hmm. And then there are people like him that come in and thwart it and they claim to be the authority, but they have nothing to do with what's going on. Mm -hmm. So very similarly, I saw yeah. like a, a connection because that's true. in, like you said, in academia, that's true in uh, sciences. That's true in how our immune system works. That's true. Probably extraterrestrial stuff. That's true. Like you said, of mm -hmm. archeology, span like that recent piece in nature where they showed that, you know, we are not digging nearly deep enough if this is true and mm -hmm. humans have been here since we assumed they couldn't have been here since before the last ice age because the wall would have been too high for them to get over here yeah from the land we, we assume that without the land bridge they couldn't have yeah. had the, the seafaring technology to get here in the first place but if it's before that then it could be you mm -hmm. know? and if they do have their i think there's another report of there could be some seafaring technology mm -hmm. even it, even in the original article it talks about like how, uh, yeah, it, it talks about how, um, well, this evidence of humans 30,000 years ago could have just been a, a failed attempt of colonization. Yeah. Like, it, even then, it, it sort of downplays it. Yeah, because they, they, they also mentioned, like, well, you know, it could have been, you know, well, they showed, uh, what you reminded me, I think it was in the same piece, because I, I read part of it, but I didn't get mm -hmm. to finish all of it, was that it showed that there was interactions between native americans and the polynesians which mm -hmm. before they had assumed that had come from asia and not the american because that shows like you were saying that they did have capacity for long range sea travel mm -hmm. earlier than we thought mm -hmm. and so yeah if, if you aren't willing to 
question the prevailing theory, then you're not going to get any progress in science. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the problem is that you don't, you have this, I mean, in my experience. It's I, human arrogance, really. Yeah, I, that's what it comes I, down to. I probably only really liked one, two of my science professors. The mm -hmm. rest of them were all pretty uniform, like just do what you're told, copy and paste. Mm -hmm. copy. Everything is just how much can you memorize? And, yeah. and that really is what it's like. And they would be good professors, they would teach us stuff, but they don't really go into the history of science at all. Like mm -hmm. I never got a narrative of the history of science. Not mm -hmm. once in any of my science classes do they ever cover the history of science or the failures of science, the successes of science, none of that. Mm -hmm. You just get random, out of context subject matter and you will have people that are going to work for major chemistry industrial companies that have never taken bioethics, have never taken ethics. Mm -hmm. Whereas like for biology, we have to take bioethics. Chemists do not have to do that. Yet they work on hydrocarbons and all sorts of chemical weapons and all sorts of things. And they never had to even take a biology class. Mm -hmm. They can get away with not learning science and they don't even understand basic stuff about archeology span and culture and history. And so I feel that the sciences are really lacking currently because they are totally out of context. You learn in organic chemistry how to do all sorts mm -hmm. of derivatives and chemical reactions with lithium. And it's like, well, where is that lithium coming from? What mine have you taken it from? Mm -hmm. And how much access do we have in our lab? And why do we even have access in this lab? So there's a lot of other bigger questions that I mm -hmm. think scientists don't ask. They just learn. And then you're like, oh, yeah, well, this is what the this person has a PhD, and so there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot of that. Yeah, I've seen it myself. Um, I've got just a couple more questions, and then uh, we'll be able to wrap this guy up. Um, what was the worst thing you saw police do in the protest that you saw personally? What's the worst uh, instigation to speak? Well, I could always go on a personal what they did to me, but that's, let me think if I can think of something. So to me, I was tear gassed when I wasn't even like next to them. And, you know, me being an amputee, I mean, they you can't just run away. Yeah. And they launched it into my lap and it detonated and blew up in my face. <laughs> so I tear gassed right in my eyes instantly because mm -hmm. I was ducking behind like a cement wall, like. 30 feet away from the police line because they had already started to clear us with tear gas. And I would see them run. They wouldn't be arresting us, but they just beat us. Mm -hmm. I, I got hit probably tons of times with their big clubs. They would start, I, and I got huge bruises on my shoulder. They would just like beat us, but they wouldn't arrest us. They would beat us to make us move. Did you ever have them just hit your prosthetic and no, have them like no. kind of be like, wait? <laughs> no, no, no. I wish. They, they probably... <laughs> I don't know, would have stopped or something, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Probably not. But they they would just like hit like hit us a bunch of times and then shove us, like go that way. Mm -hmm. And so I I fell over right away and then get up and then as I'm walking away, they shoot tear gas under your feet as you're walking away. You don't even have time to respond. And there's so many of them you don't know where it came from. Mm -hmm. You can't you feel so powerless because you can't like identify. Even if they did have their badge numbers, what are you gonna do? What are you really mm -hmm. gonna do? Call it leave a voicemail <laughs> like you can document it you can if you have the effort you can try and get a lawyer blah 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 blah, blah. Mm -hmm. but so for me being shot with tear gas four times where i had to have a medic 
like use saline and milk to wash my eyes out so I could see you know you can't see for a good 10 minutes but it's not that bad and then once they flush it it kind of goes away but at first it burns and you're totally even if you're away from the smoke i saw a little a, I little, a little bit of it myself yeah i've seen little kids getting hit because the gas just wafts and travels a long way from where they launched it and mm-hmm. hits people that had nothing to do with it and it just kind of they do it for crowd dispersal but that's our democratic right to assemble freely so mm-hmm. we, we have every right to do that. So I, I don't think uh, they're not justified. Because every time I saw them escalate the force, I never saw someone break the barrier, jump over the barrier, start throwing bottles at cops. That's mm-hmm. only after they start launching stuff. Yes, we respond. We get violent. We, people start throwing stuff. But that's that's almost always after they tear gassed us. I mean, I've videotaped all of this. You know, well, I, they get angry. They yeah. get angry when, when stuff like that happens to you, when, when you're shot at with rubber bullets, when you're tear gassed for what you thought was no reason. Yeah. So we and, escalate it and yeah. escalate it. And that's, you know, Chaz came out of 10 days of the police gassing us every single day. And I was there every single day. And they would gas us every day, always for no reason. Mm-hmm. And then... They would always have an excuse, though, like this guy over here threw a water bottle, so we had to... Yeah, and, well, and that's just like your your idea of this super overweight guy taking a dump in the street, and mm-hmm. it's like, they pick the most extreme examples that may be true, but, and then they say, okay, well, that justifies us to do it to everybody, now, mm-hmm. and to just gas everybody, and instead of just isolating that one person, or asking them to stop, or like, I don't know, they wouldn't... And it was just hard because they don't acknowledge you. You'd be like, mm-hmm. are you seriously think this is okay? Like, this is how the Tiananmen Square massacre happened in China. It's very depersonalized. Yeah. And, and they just treat you like you're not there. They don't make eye contact with you. Mm-hmm. Some of them do, but almost none of them do. And if they, you can be asking them really, like, honest questions. You can be having good conversations with them or trying to. And there is a couple that will engage, but almost always they don't engage. And mm-hmm. they try to just treat you like you're you're not one of them. Mm-hmm. You, you're below them. You're just uh, you're just one of the rebels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, finally, uh, how can people be informed on what you're doing next, or uh, any publicity that you may want? <laughs> you selling anything? You I got try a book? to keep it on the DL. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't want to get in trouble, so I just put on the deal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I guess the most the upcoming thing is uh, speaking with Congress in September mm-hmm. with uh, the American Microbiology Society, and then uh, I got a podcast coming up with Sid Rapp, the mm-hmm. Center of Infectious Disease Research and Policy. Uh, but that probably won't be for a few months because mm-hmm. I think they're going to finish four episodes on like sepsis, COVID tuberculosis and resistance and so i think they might finish all the episodes before so it might not even come out until next year but we're working on that and then uh yeah we'll see i'm kind of i mean i want to be working on a book but i'm mm-hmm. a little busy but so well, that sometimes uh, I, am. I wrote all the chapters then well that thing in new york with the american microbiology uh be televised or will we be able to access it on youtube or something uh, well the one the previous one? The, well, the one already uh, The one you're my, going to do in September. Well, that one's not with CDC. And mm-hmm. that one's, oh, yeah, yeah, that one's, I don't know, I don't think it'll be televised, because that one's with Congress members. So I'm, I'm assuming it'll be closed door. C-SPAN? 
Maybe it depends on if it's in their chambers or in their uh, office. Okay. And it also depends on if they change their mind and make it digital. And so then we could just be Skyping with these people. Mm. You know? So that's an open, that could happen as well. So we don't know. We're kind of still hoping that we'll be able to go there. Uh, not all that hopeful, but <laughs> I did it anyways. I'm more hopeful in, in people educating themselves and, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think you can be too trustworthy of people in power. You always got a question. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, David. Um, is there anything else you would like to tell the listeners? Thank you for listening. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. All right, guys. Thank you again for listening. Uh, and yes, if you're wondering, I am going to invest in a second microphone. You guys have a good night.